Welcome to the Lead Wasps podcast, the only podcast in the world to specifically host infantry guests from all over the globe. Today your guest is retired Command Sergeant Major Donald McAllister. Mac served over 25 years in the US Army and spent most of his time with the 82nd Airborne. That's where he cut his teeth during deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. Mac had a career that any infantryman worth his salt would be envious of. As a weapons squad leader during the invasion of Iraq, a platoon sergeant on another deployment, as well as a first sergeant deployed to Afghanistan. He was severely tested during these arduous deployments. His candour and leadership brought him and his men through, and his harrowing story of one night in the Argandab River Valley, Kandahar, highlights just what the extraordinary men of the 82nd Airborne are capable of. Mac is a Purple Heart recipient, a badass command sergeant major, and a goddamn American patriot. Without further ado, the Lead Wasps podcast episode 46 is live. All right, Mac, thank you very much for taking the time out of your, your day to, to come on the podcast. And straight away, we're going to jump into the opener. Uh, and that's you basically telling a, a quick story about something that happened to you on a deployment or during your time in the army that at the time you wanted to keep completely quiet. But now that you're out and a bit of time's passed, you're more than happy to share with the lads. So fire away with, uh, with your story, mate. Yeah, I mean, I got a bunch of stories, obviously, but... Uh... A personal one that's that's uh, it's pretty funny, man. I figured it'd be a good one, and I uh, I told my my medic when he was with me if he told anybody I was gonna freaking gut him. But uh, <laughs> anyway, we were doing um, we were up on uh, up uh, north of uh, Talafar in Iraq back in 05. and uh, my platoon. I was a platoon sergeant. We got we got a, a mission that night to d- conduct two air assault missions and. Uh, and retrieve uh, two separate HVIs from some IED making facilities out there, right? So I'm all hyped up, you know, we're going in, going in hot, gonna kick in the doors. We got some badass pilots, they're gonna land like right in old boy's backyard, you know, and freaking, that's the first time, like I had air assaulted all over country, but that's the first time I did like a no BS combat landing on the X as far as like, that goes um and uh we uh when we hit the ground you know you get your 60 seconds out unhook your seatbelt, all that crap we hit the ground boys are out i'm out with them running and i did the biggest cheetah flip i think i've ever done in my <laughs> career there was a wadi like literally maybe 20 meters away from the aircraft before we got into the compound and i got up and there was chunks of dirt on my nods freaking like i couldn't see my shit was all dusted off, man, and uh, and I never really told anybody about it because one, I was embarrassed as shit, and two, you know, I'm supposed to be the badass pushing everybody through. But uh, but yeah, I, I I did tell one person, one of my buddies, and he still gives me shit about that to this day. He's like, anytime I post about 05 or something, he's like, ain't that when you did the cheetah flip, dude? I'm like, shut <laughs> the fuck up, man. But yeah, it was uh, that was uh. It was an awesome night, though. I mean, we we got through it, dude. And we got both of the guys we were looking for. But uh, but yeah, I literally like just boom, 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 boom. Got up. I was like, "What the hell did I get hit?" You know, like, but uh, yeah, literally, it was a wadi, man. Just uh, kicked my ass. 
I mean, obviously, infantry bloke yourself. There's there's no amount of times that you've ate shit, but uh, yeah. in a in in the the heat of the moment when it matters, the the last person you want to see eat shit is your platoon sergeant. Uh, yeah. If it's one of the guys, you know, it's it's a not it's not even an issue. But platoon sergeant, for fuck's sake, it's like oh my god, all, all the guys must have been pissing themselves. Yeah, yeah, and you know, fortunately for me, you know, we got our chalks, and uh, you know, the only guy that's directly right with me was my medic. You know. And I told him, I was like, you fucking tell somebody I'll fuck. <laughs> but yeah, was, uh, that was a, that was a crazy night, man. But yeah, I mean, obviously stories like that, there's like a million different ones from 25 years, dude. But I was just thinking that one was, and it was, it was super funny after I thought about it. Cause I, I wish I could have saw myself. Cause I mean, hell on one deployment, I saw my Sergeant Major uh, freaking eat shit crossing a canal down in Hellman. And literally ripped his pants off. Like we told him he had a kilt because we had to give him a, a, a freaking rain jacket and he tied that around him to finish the mission. It's pretty damn funny. We had the, I had the exact same thing. I've told the story about this. Uh, we had an army, uh, I don't know what she was, but she was a female soldier and uh, she was coming through our, <clears throat> we, were, we were laying in the route and they were coming through our position. And there was a huge steep uh, irrigation ditch, must have been about 12 foot deep. And so you'd slide down into it, it was dry. And then on the other side, we had ladders. And at the top, the ladders didn't, they were only the six foot ladders, so they didn't quite reach the top. So the guy at the top had to wait and assist the other person up. <clears throat> so the female got to the top of the ladder, put her hand out to get, uh, to get a help up from, uh, it was one of the Fijian guys. And I guess he turned around, looked around at her and just thought, oh, fuck her, she must be all right. She'll, she'll get her herself. And so she put her hand out and as 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 she uh, went to grab onto him, he just turned around and she completely fell back, caught her pants on the top of the ladder and ripped them completely, almost off, like you said. And uh, she was walking about for a day or two with uh, just her knickers showing it. It was fucking all the boys in the morning, you know, same thing. It's like, fucking hell, did you get a swatch of the medic? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but... Uh, I, let me just do a quick brief introduction, Matt. Just give the, the listeners a bit of an idea of, uh, as to who you are and uh, what your career looked like in a, in a brief overall um, view. All right. Well, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'll tell you, I'm originally from, um, from a little town called Hammond, Louisiana. I graduated from Pochettula High School here in, um, in uh, the States. Uh, basically, where I grew up is about 45 minutes north of New Orleans. Um, I always wanted to go into service, man. I wanted to, I don't know, as a little kid, I always wanted to do it. And uh, I had uncles, my grandpa, everybody that were World War II, Korea, Vietnam vets. And it, they were some badasses. And most of them were Marines. Uh, my grandpa was Navy in World War II when Navy was actually legit. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but nah, he, uh, I, you know, so fast forward to high school, man, I, uh, I almost went in the Marines, um, but I really wanted to go airborne and all that stuff. And the Marine recruiter was like, well, uh, you could join up as a 03, whatever their uh, 11 series is, infantry. And then you can, you know, try to go recon and all that stuff and eventually get airborne school. And I was like, I want to be a damn paratrooper, man. So anyway, I uh, joined the Army in 92 because the uh, army recruiter was over there and I guess he was listening. He's like, Oh, I can get you an airborne slot. You know? <laughs> um, but uh, so I joined the army 92. Um, and the weird thing about my story, man, is so in airborne school, I got recruited to go to the honor guard. So I was in airborne school 
And uh, the honor guard recruiter came around. And I think there was like eight of us in the company. I was in at airborne school and he asked uh, if we had heard of the honor guard and all that stuff. And I was like, no, I don't even know what the hell that is. But he showed me all these cool pictures of DC, Washington DC and all this cool shit you could do. So I was like, all right, it sounds cool. Cause I'm a little podunk Louisiana guy. <laughs> well, anyway, I got selected. So I went there um, and I was pissed at first because everything he told me was bullshit. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was one of the best things that I think I could have done in my career because it set the tone for discipline the rest of my career. Um, so basically I was in the old guard, my first duty assignment. And then, uh, I reenlisted from there. wanted to go somewhere cool. So I went to Hawaii. I was in Hawaii, uh, September 11th happened. So in Hawaii, I was in 25th, September 11th happened. And, uh, I was like, well, I'm going to go to the 82nd. So I may as well go now. So I went to the 82nd, um, and pretty much spent the rest of my time in the 82nd, except for. I left in 2011 to go to the Sergeant Major Academy, and then uh, I got – I was there a year in El Paso. Then from there I went to uh, – they sent me to uh, 10th Mountain Division to deploy as an Operations Sergeant Major. And then I competed, competed for Command Sergeant Major and came right back to the 82nd. And what was awesome for me was I got to take the same battalion that I was the first sergeant in in the 82nd as a Command Sergeant Major, so it all kind of – came full circle and it was pretty awesome, man. But yeah, I mean, uh, you know, if anybody asks me, I'm a, I'm a 82nd dude, man. You know, I mean, you see all this shit back here, yeah. but, uh, yeah, man. I mean, I, I, uh, I did just under 25 years. I probably would have done longer, but, uh, I broke my neck on a jump and had to get a fusion done in my spine, um, in my neck. And, uh, they told me that I couldn't do static line anymore. So, uh, they offered me a job to go work with a one star uh, deploying to do some, some more operation shit. And I was like, no, nah, I ain't doing that. And then, uh, <laughs> you know, I made the decision talking to one of my old mentors, man. I always told myself, you know, when I reached my shelf life as an instrument, it was time to call it, especially as a paratrooper. And uh, yeah, man, I mean, you know, I, what I tried to do throughout my military career, man, is I, you know, I did all these deployments and stuff, but I always tried to just be, you know, like not a guy that stands on a soapbox and acts like I'm the best thing since sliced bread, dude, because I know how much that shit means. You, you, know? you wouldn't have fit in the Marines if that, if that's the case. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I've worked with some good Marines though. Oh yeah. I'm sure that there's, they're, they're awesome. Um, yeah. But they, I know they like to, to get riled up and tell good stories and good war speeches and all that sort of shit. Oh, yeah. I mean, I you know, I've had to give the go-to-war talks, don't get me wrong, but, you know, it's, uh, I think a lot of it, a lot of that shit we do is cliche, man. It's like, come on, dude. I think, you know, I think, I, heard, I think they do it for morning PT every day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're going to take that fucking hill. <laughs> you know? yeah. All right, man. What was it like growing up in Louisiana? Because from um, from a guy from Scotland, it's obviously the other side of the world. And and, and when did you say you joined 92? Yeah. Yeah. What the hell was I'm going old. on in Louisiana at 92? And uh, uh, how, how was that at the time? What was like, what was the, your mates doing? What was all your friends and buddies doing? Were they thinking about joining the military as well? Well, not, I mean, uh, we were a bunch of, I guess you could say heathens, man. Like just straight up. Like, the only reason I joined the military in 92 and not 91 
when I first turned 18 is because I had to do five years in high school because I got <laughs> expelled. Um, you know, me and my buddies, we were all, I still am, metalheads, uh, always in fights. You know, I played sports all the way up to high school, and then I got into sports in high school, but my uh, my grades were too shitty to stay in. And, uh, and, you know, I never, I don't know, I guess it was, well, one, if you ask what Louisiana is about, it's hot, humid, and, and wet. Uh, uh, but, uh, <laughs> no, man, I just, uh, you know, I was having fun doing all this stuff. And then finally I was like, well, if I want to really do what I want to do, I got to get away from this shit and I got I to gotta do something. So I had to hunker down and graduate um, because – you know, most of my buddies didn't even graduate high school back then. Um, and, and I joined, man. I, I went in. Like I said, I went to the honor guard. I was a I was a little hellion, man. Like, even there getting in fight, fights on Friday and Saturday night. You know, I mean, that's the way you want a, a young grunt, you know. But luckily, I had some real good leaders that would put a boot in my ass and uh, and kind of, you know, brought me down, down a notch or two. But, yeah, Louisiana, those days, man, it was all – you know, it was just like anywhere else, like Desert Storm had happened. So all of us kids who wanted to be who and go to war and stuff, we were too young while that was going on. And then, you know, I joined up and then for so many years, nothing was happening. All we did was train to fight the Russians, you know, and then, you know, when the war finally kicked off, then I got my wish and then some, you know. Yeah. But uh, yeah, man. And were you tracking Desert Storm at the time uh, prior to joining? Oh yeah, yeah. I was uh, I I actually, if I could have graduated that year, because that was the year I was a senior in high school, then I could have got a waiver to go in at, at seventeen. You know, I was turning eighteen, but uh, I was a year behind in high school because I got expelled my freshman year. So, so, but you know, it all worked out. And then, I mean, even you know, knowing what I know now, you know, that wasn't it probably would have been, wouldn't have been the experience I was looking for anyway, you know? Yeah. And then when I finally got the experience I was looking for, I was like, holy shit, this ain't <laughs> like Hollywood, man. You know? It's 10 times as fun. Yeah, uh, let's just jump, quickly jump about that honor guard because uh, I've spoke with a few guys before, not on the podcast, but just offline, uh, who have done the same thing. And, you know, on their Instagram and stuff, it, it looks fucking amazing. It looks like the immaculate, you know, uh, you know, everything's immaculate. The presentation's amazing. You know, rehearsals and drills are completely flawless. Jumping in at a young age and doing that straight away, did you realize that, you know, that what a privilege it was to actually get that role and how much pressure, you know, there was look, uh, from the outside looking in? Yeah, I, you know, I didn't really realize it until I think I finally, uh, you know, I got a little responsibility under my belt. Um, and became a team leader and then it, you know it was my job to inspect all those guys and i mean we still did you know infantry training live fires you know all the normal stuff but uh yeah it was um it what what really i think what really made me understand the importance of discipline especially when it comes to like the honor guard and the people outside looking in was was uh doing funerals in Arlington Cemetery um, because uh, one of my, my platoon sergeant, the first one I ever had, um, Sergeant Major retired Eligio now, the dude was a stud. Um, he uh, he told me, he's like, Mac Daddy, because that's what he called me. He's like, never forget this. 
this shit you're doing right here, this rehearsal, it's not for that that soldier that died, man. It's for his family. He's like, because that's the last thing that they're going to remember from his service. So you owe it to them to be perfect. And I mean, you know, there back then, it was just like everything else in those days. If you messed up, you were out. You know, um, if you got in trouble, out. Uh, like uh, the tomb of the unknown soldier there, like guys that were at the tomb, right? If they got their tomb badge and they leave, and it could be 10 years down the road in their career, if they get in trouble, they lose that tomb badge. Damn. You know? um, because it's so, there's so much honor that goes along with that. Now, now me, you know, people ask me if I wanted to do the tomb while I was there. I had thought about trying out, but then by the time that happened, I was already a young NCO and I figured I didn't have the discipline to go start all over again, you know, because yeah. I was really good at what I was doing. But uh, the great thing for me about the honor guard, the old guard was, you know, it, 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 it taught me that every minute little detail matters. And even though you think it's bullshit, it's there for a reason. Um, and I think throughout my career, it helped me because one, I was able to kind of be one of those guys as a leader that could kind of, you know, visualize things before we got told to do it and I would already make them happen. Or if we had to do something, you know, me as a leader, instead of bitching about it, like all of us do, I knew that I could bitch about it all day long, but it was still happening for a reason. So we needed to get that shit done, yeah. you know? And, uh, and what the old guard taught me too was you own it. So like if you're if you're doing something or you make a decision, you own it. Somebody didn't tell you to do it, none of that stuff, because they're like as a young private, right? As a young guy, you're put out there like me, for example, when I was a uh E3, I would go conduct what they call one man funerals uh in Arlington. It's basically um, there's, there's no flag. It's basically a family, a family member. And they send one soldier to go carry the urn and do all that stuff. But nobody's there to check you. It's just you. Now, if you try that in a regular infantry unit with a private, holy hell, you know, yeah. cause you know, you know, the deal, like you got to hold their, their, their babies, man. Just like I was when I got to the old guard and you don't get to that level until they know that you've reached that discipline piece. And, it, and the old guard was what was really good too, even though I thought it was the most bullshit ever when I first got there was I had to go through three weeks of training back then. They called it new man training. So it was like a little, it was a school, but now they call it like regimental orientation program because politically correct. Of course they do, yeah. But, uh, but basically it, everything that I learned in basic training about drill and ceremony and all that stuff was out the window. They were like, Throw that shit away. Don't even think about it. We're going to teach you how to do your freaking uniform because back then everything on your uniform was shined. There was no, no stay bright, no anodized, no nothing. You were taking it <laughs> off and polishing it, yeah. you know, uh, all your shoes, everything you're, uh, like we had taps on our shoes, you know, and all this crap. But, uh, and I did, I was in a alpha company commander in chief's guard. So I also had to do uh, colonials. So I wore a wig and tights and carried a musket too. Damn. What the hell do you, what event uh, did they bring those guys out for? Actually, we did, uh, so for like general officer retirements. Right. Um, when they have the regiment, um, Alpha Company would be out in uh, in the colonial uh, stuff. Basically, 
So Alpha Company Commander Chiefs Guard and the Old Guard is the only company that's actually in D.C. It's at Fort McNair. The rest of the companies are at Fort Myer in Virginia. And I guess they reestablished it in 1976 with the Bicentennial. Uh, and it was reestablished after George Washington's original lifeguard. So that was kind of the thing. And when we were in Alpha Company, you know, we did uh, we would travel around and do firing demonstrations, you call them like at Yorktown and stuff. So it was a lot prettier than what they did back in the day. But so being an Alpha Company, I had to know honor guard uh, drill and ceremony with the uh, with the M14. I had to know uh, Baron, Baron, Baron Frederick von Steubing's blue book with the musket, <laughs> all that shit. Man. And, uh, and, you know, like, like when I first, you know, when I first was like, I'm going to, I'm going to be in this company. And the reason they put me in that company is because that's where the shortest guys in the old guard go because of uniforms. Um, <laughs> so like echo company in the old guard, if you're like six, four or taller, you're going there. Yeah. Um, they call it honor guard company. And I was in Commander in Chief's Guard, which we we did caskets, and most of the guys were weightlifters and all that crap. But all of us were right around six one, six two. Um, and yeah, man. But it was a, uh, it was. At first, I thought it was bullshit. I'm not gonna lie. But then, when I started doing ceremonies and seeing how people how it affects people, and then you know, getting a security clearance and then doing ceremonies at the white house and you know meeting all these celebrities and all that shit i was like this shit ain't that bad man <laughs> you know but uh yeah it uh so with that I i'll tell you a quick story so i left the old guard to go to uh the 25th in hawaii right and i got there as a uh sergeant promotable i was young and as soon as i got there they gave me a squad we immediately did an air we were doing um a brigade FTX. So we did an air assault out to the Kahukus, right? And what I didn't know was because, you know, dudes that hadn't been in the honor guard, they like, oh, those dudes are the pretty boys, man. They're freaking blah, blah. So we're there out there and we were conducting a 12 mile foot march. And then we did a, uh, I think it was a movement to contact and all this crap. But anyway, the squad leaders and the platoon sergeant were making bets on if I was going to fall out or not. And uh, what they didn't realize was I was better at PT than any of them, you know, for being in the old guard. But I told him, I was like, I remember I told him, platoon sergeant, I was like, and he's like, you know your shit, Mac. I was like, what do you think? Because I was in the honor guard. We're not, we don't do infantry shit. I was like, I, I've done platoon X-Vals, platoon sticks, freaking EIB, you know, all the same shit. I was like, the only difference is they add all the other bullshit to it. So, but, uh, and, you know, back in those days, if you were in the old guard, you were required to have a 290 or above on your PT, which 290 out of 300, which I was a 300 kid the whole time, you know. And and uh, when I got to the regular infantry, it was kind of hard for me because I had kids that couldn't run for shit or couldn't do this or couldn't do that. And I was so used to having dudes that were just could max everything yeah. and do all this stuff because they were, I mean, back then they were handpicked, you know mainly because of how they looked, believe it or not. Like, I don't know why they picked me, but I, I look back <laughs> on it and I did look good in uniform back then. But, <laughs> but yeah, man. You've got a few laps around the sun on you now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right, in between that time then, uh, obviously you moved back and you, you ended up back with Hawaii. What was the unit that you, uh, that you rocked was, up to there? I was with uh, 127 Wolfhounds, um, which... You know, it was a great unit, man. I loved it. I love being in Hawaii. 
Hawaii was like the shit. Um, we trained our asses off, got to go cool places, you know, Japan, Alaska, stuff like that. Uh, Thailand. Um, I went to JOTC back in the day in uh, Panama, you know, uh, but, but uh, yeah, man, I mean, it was, um, it was a real, it was, it was a really good unit because they still kind of had that, in a way, kind of that Vietnam mindset because, you know, the 25th were like, Vietnam was like their thing, man. Right. Um, the only thing about it was when I was there, I knew when September 11th happened because our focus was Pacific Theater that we weren't going anywhere, you know. And I knew that if I got back to the 82nd, then I was going to go somewhere. <laughs> so... <laughs> And so what were you doing in between that, uh, that period of time until the, and before September 11th happened, was it literally just regular ready infantry ops exercises, overseas deployments to, you know, training yeah. exercises and all this sort of shit? Yeah, it was all, you know, normal, um, regular training. I, uh, like I said, I was a sergeant promotable when I got there about three, four months later, I was a staff sergeant, you know, I had a squad and then, uh, about a year before I left the island, they moved me up to a platoon sergeant position. I wasn't promotable or anything yet, but they needed a platoon sergeant, and you know I was the guy they picked. And yeah, man, I mean we just did shitload of training. We did some really cool training deployments, like I said, and you know we did uh what they call it Cobra Gold, um, Arctic Thunder, uh, Orient Shield. You know they they got they get to do a lot of cool stuff. The only thing that really hurt my feelings was when I was leaving, they were going to Australia and I didn't get to do that <laughs> oh, man. One. So I wanted to do that one, but uh, I never got to do that one. And, and uh, so it, but I didn't get to the 82nd until August of 02. Um, and as soon as I got to the 82nd, you know, there were rumors that we were, because all the stuff was kicking up with Iraq, that we were going to go to Iraq. Um, First brigade was already in Afghanistan and, uh, Anyway, uh, we, uh, you know, I got there. I wanted to get schooled out, go to whatever schools I jump master everything. And so I got there in August, um, October, we were at, uh, the national training center at NTC, um, uh, jumping in with the uh, 75th Rangers. And then, uh, February we deployed to, uh, Saudi Arabia, but not Kuwait. We deployed to a different place because my, battalion at the time uh our our commander was a ranger regiment guy's whole career and when the big mission to jump into biop was going to happen the 75th was who was going to do it um and they needed a battalion to augment to take so they were going to take the main aircraft traffic uh i mean the main terminal of the airport and then we were going to take the uh, air traffic control tower so um but yeah man i got i got there and it was hot and heavy and then you know like NTC, then we were back just jumping, jumping, training, training, you know, doing all this different training with uh, with Ranger Regiment. And then we deployed all covert and civilian clothes and shit when the rest of our brigade deployed to Kuwait. Like, had no clue where we were going, and, and then they briefed us. And, yeah, it was it was pretty crazy. But I was like, well, came to the right place, I guess. You know? <laughs> let, me just, let me just try and clear up what happened then. So you deployed to Saudi Arabia, and you were doing a bunch of um... – I would get, let me call it pre-deployment training for lack of a yeah. better term. And that's when you're doing a bunch of jumps and just a bunch of, you know, readiness yeah, well, for going to war. Well, actually, 
before we deployed, we did, you know, we did our jumps. We did, uh, we even did some airlands uh, in case the jump was scratched or aircraft. Um, but so basically we deployed to, uh, to RR Saudi Arabia. I mean, it's in now, but we deployed there. I want to say it was like the beginning of September. I mean, uh, February. And uh, we got there and then, you know, we got briefed up and then we, we were conducting training out there, you know, live fires, doing all the stuff, getting ready. And then, you know, every day we were planning for the jump, um, going through equipment and everything else. And then uh, I remember, uh, I think it was, it was like three days before we were going to jump. They had all the satellite imagery. Um, they had the terrain model built up, uh, showing us, you know, our objectives, what we're going to do. And then they showed us what Saddam had on the airfield. And I was a weapon squad leader at the time. So uh, in the in the Army in the 82nd, you know, that's the guy that controls the machine guns. Um, and so my job was when we were, when we were going to jump in and we we're going to take air, the air traffic control tower was we had to jump in, make it to where the uh, power station was and then uh, lay down suppressive fire with javelins and everything else because there was a big hole in the wall to keep uh, the Medina division from getting in <laughs> while the rest of the battalion moved up to clear the tower. Um, but long story short, uh, about uh, less than 24 hours out from the jump, it got scratched because third ID in the thunder run um, and, you know, the sandstorms and all that crap, they made it up there. But then I guess fortunate for us, man, is, um, they, so when third ID did the thunder run and just bypassed everything, right. They didn't clear anything going to Baghdad. And what had happened was, was the Fed and Republican guard came down South and we're going to come up behind them and just cut off all their supply lines and take them out. So when the jump got scratched, we immediately got on the same, uh, C-130s that we were going to jump out of. Uh, which was one of the worst flights I ever had in my life because they had us on there like sardines on the floor because you know there were no seats or anything. And, oh, uh, I've been I've been there before. Yeah, you know you know what I'm talking about. And then we landed in uh, Talil Air Base in Iraq, and then the very next day, I'm on the back of LMTVs gacking to uh, the city of Osama, and uh, we conducted the big uh, attack into Osama. We we linked up with the rest of the brigade. Uh, I think we were a brigade minus because they had to leave like one platoon back from each company in the battalions because mm -hmm. uh, of seats. But yeah, we went in, um, 4,000 fed waiting on us and yeah, we kicked the shit out of them. It was pretty awesome. <laughs> and I was a, uh, you know, like I love 240 machine guns. I love like, even when I was a sergeant major, that's my baby. And, uh, you know, my claim to fame, if I got any is, you know, I got to be a no bullshit, you know, support by fire, freaking squad leader, weapon squad leader, putting his guns into action and all that shit under fire. And by the way, when we deployed, there wasn't a, you know, a uh, basic combat load at Green Ramp. They're like, I was like, what can I get? They're like, what do you want? I was like, hell yeah. So we had, <laughs> I shit you not, I, I, I still have it somewhere, but we had uh 4,000 rounds per gun. I had two guns. Jesus. And, you know, Jesus. Uh, and, you know, basic combat load for one's 800 rounds. Yeah. I mean, how is that getting split around among the guys? Oh, 
the whole squad was carrying it. I think I had, I had 400 rounds plus Emilio's. I had four law rockets, like, <laughs> uh, you know, my binos, all that shit in my rucksack. And that's what I tell people too. I'm like, unless you've been in combat and invaded somewhere, you don't know what a heavy ruck is, man. Like that shit gets heavy. Um, but yeah, man, I mean, we, we, uh, we divided it amongst, amongst the squad and, uh, between the two teams. Uh, so I had a, I had a nine man squad, um, you know, two machine gunners, AG, AB. And then I had, uh, my, my anti-tank gunners, my javelin guys. Um, and I also, which had never happened before, but I talked, uh, my first sergeant commander into it. We had extra 203s, um, in the, uh, arms room. And I was like, well, why can't, why can't my ammo bearers have those 203s? They're like, well, that's not Intel. I'm like, yeah, but if I'm if I'm in a support by fire position, that's a freaking indirect fire asset right there that we have that I can control. And they're like, oh shit. So my uh my ammo bearers had 203s when we were uh when we went in there and we just like I could tell you this. I my first uh magazine was tracers, and you know we did all that shit in training. Yeah, yeah. But I was tracing a lot of shit, just put it that way. It was uh, um we we got down uh, at the end of the firefight. I think it lasted close to seven hours. We were down to about it was a little less than two hundred rounds for both guns. Damn. And, and if my guys wouldn't have knew how to do their crew drills and and change their barrels and all that shit, there's no way that they would have been able to keep that rate of fire up. Um, because basically our job was we had to lock down these two bridges, and also what worked out too was. So we kind of, it was almost like the Mogadishu mile. When we got one bridge cleared, we had to move to the other one. It was about a mile away. And there were these two bridges going uh, across, uh, it was either Highway 8 or Highway 5, basically, to the uh, Tigris. And uh, my buddy Cavazos at the time had just made Sergeant First Class, but he didn't leave the company yet, so he didn't have any job. And he was a prior weapons weapons squad leader, so he's like, "Dude, I'll take I'll take gun two, man." Compared to that bridge, <laughs> I was like, "Fuck yeah!" So he took one, and I had the other, and we were just, yeah, it was a, it was, it was, you know, crazy. But that was the day, you know, that I got to see what a no bullshit airborne infantry battalion is capable of. Yeah, you know, and it was. It was, and luckily for us, you know, you know the deal. Iraqis can't shoot for shit. You know? Well, they do fucking shoot over the balls and all that yeah. shit. One one handed shooting, and none of their shits uh, zeroed anyway. Even if they were shooting uh, properly. But let me let me just dive into the uh, the makeup of your battalion, then, because I think we have it differently over here. So we have a support company, and in that company we have recce mortars uh, and guns, and then uh, anti tank as well, platoon. So <clears throat> yeah. And then the regular fighting companies, we've got three three platoons. And so what we would normally do is we'd have the the, the guns or the guns platoon fire, uh, giving us some fire support for us to for, uh, launch a platoon ahead of us, you know, at like roughly like a 90 degree angle, you know, yeah. sort of thing. Is that is that how you were rolling with it? Or was it, yeah, do, well, you have it a, do, do you have a gun squad in, embedded with a, with a, comp, uh, with a uh, rifle platoon. company? So basically, the way the way the way we were, so um, the breakdown of a of an infantry battalion is we do have a support company, but they're they're straight logistics. So mechanics, cooks, yeah. you know, uh, ammo guys, all that shit. Um, 
And then we have we have uh, four line companies, we call them Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, and Delta. Yeah. Delta Company is our heavy, heavy weapons company. Right. So basically, you know, in a, in a normal situation, you know, our Alpha, Bravo, and Charlie are just straight up light infantry, no vehicles, no yeah. nothing. Delta Company has uh, gun trucks with a heavy weapon. So Mark 19, 50 cal, yeah. and jack, and, and uh, uh, tow missiles. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then our within our battalion, um, HHC, so headquarters, headquarters company has our scout platoon, which, you know, they're our scouts. Yeah. They have our battalion mortar platoon and then, uh, and then, uh, our medical platoon. And then yeah. with those guys, uh, each, and then each company has from the battalion mortar platoon, a mortar section attached. Right. So, okay. So each company has a 60 millimeter mortar team with them. Um, and then, and then uh, as far as heavy weapons go, the only heavy weapons that a, a company has, and that's in each platoon are javelins basically. And, uh, and each platoon has a machine gun squad, which is a weapon squad. So it's basically the way we used to equate it is the weapon squad leader is basically like the assistant platoon sergeant because he's the most senior guy supposed to be the most knowledgeable and yeah. he's in charge of the guns because you know to deal with the machine guns you got to put them in the right place and you got to get <laughs> yeah. that guy's heads down um and then uh for our fire support we have uh fisters we call them you know uh um forward observers and all that stuff that actually uh call in you know 107s from from uh the uh artillery battery and stuff like that and then uh and then we all also um, we in, in airborne land uh, get uh, JTACs and controllers also to talk to the Air Force aircraft. So I mean, yeah, that's how we're kind of laid out. Yeah, our HQ company and support companies just flip their own, so you you call it vice versa. Uh, yeah. But in terms of the in terms of the actual companies, the assets we get are the same thing. They're just requested oh, yeah. for throughout the company, yeah, and then the the platoon or whatever will get it as and when needed. Um, but are you guys carrying any guns within a, within the line company? So within, within oh, the rifle company and the platoons and sections? Yeah, we have, so like I said, we have, uh, within the rifle company, we got one, uh, mortar section and, uh, they're qualified all the way up to one twenties and depending on the mission, we can get one twenties if we need them. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's one section per company and within the company, they're in the headquarters section. So, you know, a company headquarters is. CO first sergeant the XO um, yeah your mortar section and then your your medics and you and then your attachments you know FOs yeah, and all yeah, that yeah. stuff um, but yeah man um, so the commander has them right there at his disposal mortars and then he has the forward observers so if he wants to get you know some some freaking reach out there and touch you type stuff he can tell those guys <laughs> I want that hit call it up you already got you already got a TRP set up let's fire it up you know. But you, but you're not carrying two uh, forties in the the uh, oh, yeah. in the regular squad. Oh, the regular squad, no. So a regular a regular infantry squad, um, their machine guns they have they have the saws, the M two four nine machine gun, you know, uh, smaller caliber, and then you have two two forty teams within the weapon squad. So basically, a weapon squad in a platoon, a platoon's four squads, four nine man squads. The fourth squad is weapon squad. Right. So, so we. Squad we we only have so we have three sections and and 
within that platoon that's that's the build-up of it and then in the platoon you'll maybe have one gun uh maybe per se- one gun per section and then you know in crazy crazy events you'll have two guns per section so two guns per squad and they're not from the the guns platoon or the guns um guns platoon from support company so it's it, it is a bit different but it's it's pretty crazy i don't know if you've seen pictures or, or videos uh, of just regular uh <laughs> british guys on patrol with a fucking 240 it's, it's oh, pretty I've, cool uh, i've been with those guys in hellman man yeah uh, in hellman uh we were we actually uh what was the the unit um so we had so we were at lasker gar for a while and we fell under uh it was the queen's company or queen's i forget their the nomenclature i have a coin somewhere but we worked with those guys uh clearing highway one um all the way out in the desert to marja and all that stuff and we were we were working with those guys all the way down to like nawa and hellman and uh i got to you know those I mean, they operate basically, you guys operate basically just like we do, a little bit different verbiage. Yeah. Now, I will tell you this, and I don't care what anybody says, and I'll fight them <laughs> over this. The Brits have the best freaking EOD in the world, man. Your guys oh, really? are. The- yeah, dude. Like, I don't know if it was just the team that we had got or whatever, but, you know, the guy that was the EOD guy was basically a commando. And, um, like, the way they came in, they had their own security. Freaking, you know, he had it looked like some shit off Call of Duty when they jumped off. Like one of them had <laughs> pencil bent mustache. But yeah, they were good dudes, man. Like real good dudes. Yeah, I mean a lot, a lot of. Uh, so I was talking to a Danish guy, and he he actually said that he had the engineers at the the you know essentially in the scout position of the squad. And I was like, nah, man, we just have just regular dudes doing the exact same job. And he's like, he couldn't believe that the engineer's job was just done by a regular grunt yeah, <laughs> and it was like, like a private normally it's a private just you know maybe been in about a year year and a half something like that and he's out there with his fucking metal detector looking for fucking bombs yeah. it's insane but yeah the e, the actual eod coming in uh get rid of confirmed ieds yeah pretty cool and uh, they've yeah. got all the they've got all the, the you know the fancy equipment the, those robots and all that sort of shit let me yeah, just well, jump well, let, let me just jump quickly back to iraq um because yeah. I know in, in 2003 you had a bit of a bit of a rough deployment there um yeah. talk to me about some of your highlights there or you know maybe you have different verbiage for for that i don't know if it was a low light but uh talk to me about some of the things that uh went on there well i mean uh like, like i said dude i was with uh i was with second 325 uh, airborne infantry regiment which they call the white falcons uh uh when we deployed i was a weapon squad leader while we were while we were moving up to Baghdad, we fought in the Samoa. We were there for about this week and a half. We moved to uh, Diwania. We went through Najaf. We went through Ramadi, Fallujah, and then up to Baghdad. Um, and I made the Sergeant First Class list. I think it was in June. And I made the list. Um, and then in uh, August, or as late July, I moved out, I moved company. So I left Charlie company and went to Alpha company and took a platoon. So I was in charge of 42 guys in Alpha company. Um, I, my first, you know, I could talk about all the different raids and all like that, yeah, yeah. but, uh, but when I, when I got my platoon, um, one of the first things we had was a big, a big, uh, 
basically Baghdad wide clearance operation. Right. And, uh, we're going into this house, you know, we, we did a map recon and all this stuff. And, uh, we were looking for these HVIs, basically dudes on Muhammad's army list. And, uh, so I had a new PL and I'll say it here. The kid sucked, man. Like he did, uh, but he meant well, but, uh, <laughs> so we had just got, that's an even kid. worse insult than telling him he sucked. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but no, but, uh, well, to go back before we got even, well, when we got to Baghdad, like, and it trips guys out that know me now, but all our vehicles and everything were civilian vehicles that we took off the populace because we we're 82nd Airborne. We didn't have vehicles, you know, so I drove a, I drove a freaking uh, a four door little Hilux truck that we kicked the doors out of in the windshield and we put some 100 mile an hour tape on it and turned it into, you know, blackout drive. Um, one of the guys had got back then a Maxim magazine in the mail and it had the Grand Theft Auto Vice City had just come out. So it had Vice City stickers. So we put them on the side of the truck. And the back of it was just the truck was so nasty from blood and shit, you know, from putting bad guy bodies and shit in there. But anyway, we had just so when I was over at Alpha Company, we had just got uh, Humvees and uh, they were basically just command vehicles, no doors, no tops, no nothing. And uh, they only had they only had enough to outfit one platoon at a time. So my platoon's out. Uh, we got two Humvees. And, you know, I got, I got, so basically one squad on the Humvees, the weapon squads with me. And then I got three squads ready. One's going to be my, my, uh, foothold, you know, breach the door, go into the house. And then the other, the other two were the cordon. Um, well, anyway, I told the PL, marked it off on the map. I was like, what we're going to do, sir, is we're just going to drive right by. And as you get right in front of the house, just drop an IR chem light. So the guys know exactly what gate. Well, anyway. See the house, I'm behind him, probably, you know, 25, 30 meters back with my vehicle. And uh, he just drives right by. No Kim light, no nothing. I'm like, what the fuck? So I told my driver, I was like, keep going. And I jumped out and ran. And I ran over to the gate and threw the IR Kim light. And right as I did that, there was a dude on the roof. And you know how the roofs in Iraq and all were, where they, you know, they had the little wall and the people were the. So dude just opened up on me, man. And physics wise, there was no way he could hit me because I was up against the wall and the way he was shooting, he couldn't even see me. But anyway, all that shooting's happening. And then I hear two shots from behind me and that's it. Like literally probably a hundred meters away. Well, anyway, <laughs> the most, the badass thing about that was that was a dude we were looking for. And one of my guys on the street, um, he actually, like, saw the dude shooting at me. I would him, put his freaking peck two on the dude's forehead, and shot the whole top of the dude's head off. Um, and and what what I guess one of my claim to fames with that one is is I was I was a stickler hard as hell before we went out every night. Guys, re freaking uh, re lit their lasers. They made sure everything was good to go. Everything, if we had to, we lollipopped it or whatever. And uh, and uh, so, yeah, so Wise took the dude out. Um, we went in, cleared it, came out, and then uh, the uh, brigade commander came up. And I'll never forget, um, Wise was, like, kind of freaked out because I went over and saw him. We had the OAO. Clean. I was like, come here, man. He was like, because that was the first, you know, he had shot 
at dudes, but didn't know, like, he saw the dude, you know, yeah, like, yeah. right there. He's like, and, uh, and anyway, I was like, dude, you saved my life, man. You know, I gave him a hug, whatever. And the Colonel gave him a, um, a confirmed kill. But with that one, the only reason I'm telling you that story is to fast forward to when we get back from deployment and I got out of the hospital, cause I did make start first class. I had to go to, uh, what we called a advanced, uh, non-commissioned officer course. And I was there in, uh, at Fort Benning and we, we had the infantry conference and they had all these commanders coming in and, uh, you know, telling vignettes from Iraq cause this is just after the invasion. And I had just told one of my buddies from the 25th that was in school with me about that story. And I shoot you not, we go to sit in on a briefing and then, and then one star Colonel Fuller, who was my brigade commander at the time gave a on the night, his topic was on the night and his vignette was that. And then he pointed up to me and Miller was like, holy shit, dude, you wasn't full of shit. I'm like, no, man. But it was, but the reason why it was important, I think the dude was number two on Muhammad's list, number two or three. So he was a big deal. But, uh, but anyway, my, so the guy that was platoon sergeant in Alpha Company before me, the guy said that he was, he was one of those guys. He was an old dude when we deployed, uh, he was basically retired on active duty. He didn't want to go out on patrols and, uh, and you know, the deal, I'm sure you do. Um, once you get up to that level, like you don't have to go out on patrol with these guys, unless it's a platoon mission, you know, cause the squad leaders have it. PL's got it, but see, I was a young guy and I was out on every freaking patrol just about, you know, um, mainly because I was trying to get a feel for what the platoon was doing and all that stuff. Well, anyway, it's my first like week or two there. Like we took out quite a few bad guys, raided a bunch of houses and all that stuff. And then um, fast forward to uh, October, uh, we had we had put these guards at the Al-Rashid Bank in Outdoor District in Baghdad. And my PO comes in and I'll never, I'll never forget it because one of my squad leaders, Conklin, I had my little hooch and Conklin was like, hey, Sergeant Mac, you want to go on half with me? I can get us a a Hodge uh, PlayStation. I was like, yeah, fuck <laughs> So we had a PlayStation and we were playing uh, NCAA, you know, 2004 <laughs> back in or three or whatever it was. And uh, I had my dynasty going with LSU. But anyway, uh, the uh, the PL coming there, he's like, hey, Sergeant, I'm going to check on the guards at the bank. You want to go? Because I told him to come let me know. And I was like, yeah, I'll roll out with you, sir. So we had two the two Humvees um, went out, checked on the guards at the bank. Everything was good. Um, when we're coming back, like the market's literally 800 meters, a thousand from where our, our, uh, cop was. And so when, when we came out, even though it was October, it was hot as shit that day. And I'll never forget. I told, uh, Sergeant Bergner, who was one of the, one of my team leaders, um, cause we had a, it was basically a command vehicle. So it just had the cover on the front, but there was no cover on the back or anything. Um, and I was like, Hey dude jump in the front and pull security. I'll jump in the back, dude. It's hot as fuck. And he had been out on the street all day. He was a rudder sergeant. So I'm in the back, you know, facing out with my leg over the side with my turp right beside me. And I have a uh, specialist Friesenberg up here with me. And then one of my other squad leaders driving. And then, you know, my PO was in the truck in front of us. Well, anyway, coming out of the uh, market, literally 50 meters outside the market, right by a little power substation, we got hit. And uh, it was a place that I never would have even imagined they would have hit us at. Um, but it uh, 
So anyway, my vehicle got hit with five one five five rounds that were daisy chained together. But fortunately for me at that time, they wasn't good at IEDs. They had just started them, so they buried it under the asphalt. So that took some of the blast because if it wouldn't, it would have just just obliterated that yeah. truck. But anyway, it flipped the truck up in the air like three four times, uh, threw me like thirty meters from the vehicle. Uh, Fred, Fred got hit. He was my terp. He had a piece of shrapnel that went all the way through him. Um, he was like dead instantly. I had a piece hit my body armor here and, uh, they showed me after, but it totally shattered it, but it didn't go through. Um, and then, you know, well, it's crazy, man. Like when it happened, it was so surreal. Like I felt it happen and I could see things in slow motion. Like when, when I got hit, I felt like this just pressure. Right. And then I, I remember I got both hands and I'm like that, like that trying to see and I couldn't see and I'm reaching for my weapon because I kept my weapon on a D-ring. That way, if I needed to drop it, I could, mm -hmm. uh, I found my weapon, but apparently the, all that was happening when I was, you know, getting thrown out of the vehicle because, and then, uh, so yeah, I got thrown like 30 meters from the vehicle. Uh, my uh, Sergeant Burdner, the guy that was in the seat where I was at because of the way the, uh, the uh, bomb hit. And when it hit the vehicle, it basically just blew his ass out. So he didn't get a scratch. Fucking um, hell. Yeah, which he still, I ran into him a couple of years ago at the uh, 82nd Airborne Convention. And he blames himself for me getting jacked up. I'm like, no, dude, I mean, that was my day, dude. But, uh, and then uh, Sergeant Reed, the other guy that was driving, um, you know, he had shrapnel all through his legs. But so I had, uh, my face was totally remodeled. Like I had a, a piece that went through my lip all the way back up into here. So you can see my, all my teeth and my skull right there. I had right here a piece and it was a big old hole that took all the flesh off. So you can see the bone, but it lodged up in my helmet. So that's why I tell people I got that Neanderthal head. So it just bounced off. <laughs> um, I had a piece went into my eyeball, like, well, ripped it over here. And then I had another piece go in here and it's still in my eyeball. Um, big piece in my throat. Um, piece about that big in my hip that went in basically where my groin's at all the way up to my hip bone or my hip joint. And then, uh, they did a drive by on us too with a, with a van, but, uh, hell. but my first vehicle, I think it was uh joy was on the, uh, the, uh, two, four, nine on top of it. They said he lit that vehicle up, man. So that was good. Uh, <laughs> and then I, and I meant to, uh, Friesenberg. So we had a, we had an SOP too because we had guys because we were doing high speed chases through Baghdad and shit with our civilian vehicles. We had an SOP. We made dudes take their take their uh, their uh, one inch nylon straps and uh, lock into the vehicle that way that we can get thrown out. And we did the same thing with the Humvees because you know they were just up on the air guard. There was no yeah, yeah. no no freaking uh, hatch or anything. Well, Friesenberg was up there with a saw, and when the vehicle flipped, like he still he still talks about to this day. Kid didn't get a scratch. Both his eardrums were bursted, but the vehicle landed on top of him. Holy like, shit. Like, literally. So he was in the truck bed of it, because, you know, it was like, and didn't get a scratch. Uh, just, you know, bursted his eardrums. He didn't get thrown out of the turret, no. No, because he, he was strapped in. He had to ride it out. And uh, we didn't have a turret. <laughs> so he's just on top of the truck, you know, with his, his gun like this. Uh, so he just rode it out. Fucking like hell. he said he don't even know if he got knocked out or whatever from the blast 
but basically it happened on my side of the vehicle and it was all under the asphalt yeah. on the curb. And, you know, that was early when they, like we had just found out what IEDs were like a month prior to that. <laughs> uh, but uh, I guess I was doing my job because my sergeant major colonel, everybody still tells me that the intel was they were gunning for me because everything was cool until I came over to that sector. Right, right. You know, you know about Iraq. We had once we got there, we had platoon sectors that were ours, man. Like we got to know everybody in there. We got to, but uh, yeah, man. I got. I mean, I was jacked up bad. Like a lot of the dudes thought I was gonna die and all this shit. Now, fortunately for me. All of the injuries were severe, but they none of them hit anything that was going to kill me. You know, I mean, I looked bad. Um, and uh, my buddy Johnson, he's a retired sergeant major now, but he was the guy that came out on QRF to evac me. Um, and his medic, who's who's passed away now, he killed himself. But uh, his medic, actually, when they said when he was trying to, when they got me on the truck and he was trying to give me the morphine and all, uh, Doc, I made him freaking hit himself with the morphine because I was just like fighting, trying to figure out what was going on. They said I kept talking, but they couldn't understand Fucking what I was hell. saying. But anyway, hey, let, got... let me just jump in quickly there. Do you do you have any idea what type of uh, IED was? I'm I'm I'm, I'm going to assume it was a command command. Oh yeah, wire. it was it was command command debt. Yeah, yeah, they were watching us when it happened. Um, they actually. Uh, I think a month or two later, Charlie Company, the company I came from, actually went and uh, from that they got intel and actually raided the uh, where they were making those um, and got them. And actually, when I got hit, uh, Iraqi lady took a picture of it and brought it to my battalion headquarters and gave it to the colonel. No way. And he, uh, when we got back in. Uh, when I got out of Walter Reed, he, he told me, he's like, I got something for you. I don't know if you want to see it or not. And then he told me what it is. I was like, yeah, I want to fucking see it. So he gave it to me and I still have it. And, uh, you know, for all those years after that, I'd be like, shit sucks, but it ain't that bad. you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, uh, the only thing like, you know, I, I regret back then was, you know, I don't have all the pictures and everything of like, cause we had like disposable cameras and shit. But uh, with that, man, um, so I got I got evac to uh, to the cash, then the cash evac, they did emergency surgeries and then they evac me to Germany. And then from Germany, they were gonna take my right eye and then they talked to some doctor, Walter Reed, and he's like, don't take the eye, send him here ASAP. So I got there and he told me he was gonna be able to save my eye, but it was gonna take a while. So I wound up being in Walter Reed for, I guess, uh, just under three months. Um, and, uh, and then when I finally got out, I had to go back to Bragg and, and you know, I've seen a doctor out at Chapel Hill for my eye, another, cause I had the wound in my leg. It took, I don't know, like five months to finally heal up. Cause you know, it's got to heal from the inside out. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I got, a, you know, another one, in my left leg and all, but, uh, anyway, they were trying to med board me. Um, and if you know anything about that, that's where they medically retire you and all that yeah. stuff. And I was like, no. And they're like, yeah, we're going to midboard. I was like, no, you're not. I was like, I'm going to be jumping. I'm going to be doing, you know, all this stuff. And they're like, the doctors are like, you'll never be able to jump out of planes again. You won't be able to do a pull-up because my, uh, whatever you call this here, that joint that goes to your shoulder and all that stuff, 
on my left side, everything was torn and disconnected. So for, I guess it was about three months, I had no use of my left arm. Um, and then finally, physical therapy, you know, I got it back. And then I had to do all the strengthening crap. But anyway, with that, I fought the med board, got somebody to sign off on a waiver and stayed in. And uh, I guess maybe six months after I got out of the hospital, I was back to maxing my PT test. You know, I could foot march and, you know, 80 pounds and under freaking three hours. There you, you know, go. Jumping again. Back in and, the game. Uh, yeah. And and uh, I remember my my uh, Sergeant Major at the time, he's retired now, but he saw me one day when I technically wasn't supposed to. I was uh, I was um, foot marching with the guys, and he's, he called me over side. He's like, Mac, what the fuck are you doing? I was like, PT, Sergeant Major. He's like, you ain't supposed to be carrying that shit yet. I was like, well – if I feel like I can, I should be able to. And I'll never forget <laughs> that day he threatened me. He's like, he's like, all right, I see you doing this shit again for the doctor say you can. I'm going to take your ass out of this platoon and I'm going to make you work in the intel of the battalion. And I was like, <laughs> but um, yeah, man, like, because it was, I don't know, like, you know, I, I put my wife and kids through hell with all that, but I knew with the war going on and all, like, I didn't understand, but a lot of things, but I know that if I would have let them med board me now with everything that I know, I would probably be one of those st statistics, you know, because yeah. I couldn't have lived with sitting home watching it while it was going on, you know, and, and also, you know, I felt at that time that I did have that experience that I could keep pushing guys and I knew the war wasn't going to end anytime soon. And I didn't want the bad guys to win, man, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, I did, you know, I went through all that. Guys that were there knew me, and they knew what I went through. But over the years, I never played that up. I didn't even really tell guys what had happened to me because, you know, I, I wanted guys to know that, hey, Mac's a good leader because he's a good fucking leader. Not, oh, he went through all this shit, so he's a badass. Because I could have went through all that shit and still be a piece of shit, you know? <laughs> uh, hey, let, but, let, let me jump in and uh, ask you a couple of questions there about what, what you were just talking about. Uh, one not so serious and the other one quite, quite you know, serious. So <clears throat> the not so serious is one is when you got blown up, did it hurt? Can you remember the, it being painful Actually, or what? I felt no pain whatsoever. Fuck, like literally, man. like none. Um, I didn't feel any pain until I woke up in the cash after surgery. Okay. Uh, I guess it was all shock or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, my, and then my next question is, a bit more serious what's your overall like thoughts on that whole medical process that you went through from first of all getting took to the i guess a combat air post or whatever all the way through to finishing up at what we're reading and going through your your stuff at unit well back then dude it sucked um you know my unit did well getting me out of there they did everything they were supposed to do at the combat sport hospital they did everything i mean germany did but when I got to Walter Reed, uh, I had like 10 different doctors, <clears throat> you know, orthopedics, general surgery. Uh, uh, I had an ophthalmologist and I had an ocular trauma specialist. I had like, there was like a shitload of doctors I had. And then, um, and this, okay, so this is funny. So I'm, I'm there, it's like the second day I'm there and this Pogue ass staff sergeant walks in, fat, <laughs> no combat and he's like he's like uh 
he's like, hey, Sergeant, I'm your I'm your uh, medical platoon sergeant. I was like, the fuck are you talking about? You're my medical platoon sergeant. He's like, yeah, I'll be responsible, you know, for getting you where you need to go. He's like, you need to be at my formations and all. He's like, one of the nurses will bring you in your wheelchair and all this shit. I looked at him. I was like, motherfucker. I said, I'm a platoon sergeant for a fucking 42 man light in- airborne light infantry company platoon and some little pogue ass dude like you is not going to fucking be in charge of me. And then anyway, he went and talked to his company commander who was a female and she came in and I guess I punked her out because she's like, yeah, you don't have to go in any, uh, any of those formations or anything. Sorry. You know, cause I'm like, what the fuck? But, uh, yeah, it was, uh, Walter Reed was bad because back then they had no systems, man. Cause they weren't ready for all that. Yeah. Um, you know, even like the uh, the stitches I had in my in my lip before I got plastic surgery had been in there for weeks, and finally the dude that was fucking with my eye, he was like, "Fuck it, I'll take him out since nobody else is going to do it." You know, um, but I will say, um, you know, when I got back to Bragg, I went to uh, Womack and you know saw my docs and all, and they were like, "No, we're going to send you to specialists that." So I went to UNC Chapel Hill um, and, and two of the doctors I had, one for my eye and then the other one for all my orthopedic stuff. Uh, one of them was an ocular trauma specialist, but he was freaking awesome. And then the other guy was the actual uh, um, team physician for the UNC uh, football team. So he was good at, you know, strengthening me back up. But uh, yeah, man, um, you know, fast forward to five, six years later when I had guys wounded and I went and visited them and Walter Reed, the processes and the systems were so much better, man. Like, cause you know, they had, they had one case manager that handled what they were going, going through. Uh, if they had to go see a separate doctor, they took care of making sure it was all done. And, you know, they, cause you don't know who the fuck you're supposed to talk to. Or yeah. what you're supposed to do, yeah. You know? Like, um, but yeah, man, um, it was, uh, it was difficult. And, you know, you go from being like back at that time, dude, you know, like you're this little badass, feel bulletproof. And then all of a sudden, like realistically, when I was in Walter Reed, man, I just felt alone. Yeah. You know, like, uh, hey, I, I know about, I know about that process as well. So I, I actually ended up getting a medical discharge and getting put through the board and stuff. And that's the last thing I, I ever wanted. But when I, I, I got, I, <clears throat> I got injured and it was a gradual thing. So my knees end up fucking giving out and yeah. you know, I'd finished my platoon sergeant's course and I was, came back to the unit and I was essentially, I was going on selection for, uh, you know, SAS over here in the UK, uh, SF. And I was like, you know, and I was at the pinnacle of my career almost, you know, I went and done all these courses early and I came off that course or oh, I finished it, came back to the unit and I was trying to crack on with this injury. And I was like, you know, I just need to get this seen, get this fixed. And then, you know, three years later, I, I met, um, I met discharge and it's because they never fucking looked out for you. You know, after three years, it's just, you know, what the fuck am I doing? You know, still trying. Why the fuck am I still trying to, to be a soldier when no one else around me wants me to be a soldier? So, like, you know, you end up, you end up being top of your company, you know, you're, you're fucking all singing, all dancing, good bloke comes around to the first promotion board and it's like, right, you've dropped four places. It's like, 
how the fuck have I dropped four places? And uh, oh, it's not because you're injured, it's because you're inactive. And it's like, what the fuck? Where's the difference? Then, yeah. then you know, you come around a year again, it's like, right, you're now your bottom third of the company. And it's like, what the fuck is going on here? And then, no, it ends up being three years later and you're, you're fucking, that's it. You're, you're pulling the pin, you're, you're out. No one gives a fuck. Um, so I, I understand the processes and it, it is miserable. And, you know, for guys who, are, who have went through it, there's not many guys who I can talk to and say, oh, it's been amazing. You know, the whole process has been amazing. But I, yeah. I do understand there's a difference between, you know, minor injuries like I had that, you know, that just become fucking a burden and severe catastrophic injuries that guys have to go through and go to, you know, over here we've got a place called Headley Court down in, down in Birmingham. It's the same as your Walter Reed in the States. Yeah. There's a difference, of course there is. But, you know, it's the same process that, that guys are going through. And at, at that Headley Court, they're getting everything. Like you were saying, you've got t t 20 different surgeons and all this yeah. crap. But it's it's rough. Um, but anyway, the story is that you get back to your unit and you're back uh, back to full fitness and charging again. So how quickly was it before you, uh, before you were redeployed? Because going back to was, Iraq must have been fucking insane after the way you left it Iraq. It was, man. We... Uh... So, uh, so I got hit in uh, October of '03, and then we were back in Iraq December of '04. So, just <laughs> a, little, a little over a year. Um, and, Fucking hell! And, and it wasn't even a planned deployment. It was for we were the uh, division ready force, and the elections were happening, and then they needed. So basically, at that time, that's when uh, uh, Highway Eight between the Green Zone and, and Biop was the Highway of Death. They called it. So they wanted us to go in and clear that out for the elections. And uh, we deployed there. We were there for about two weeks in Baghdad. Uh, not much really happened. My platoon, we found a, uh, a uh, V-bid, found it because we freaking raided this dude's house. And then, uh, and then on uh, New Year's Eve, we got a mission because the, uh, the chow hall at Stryker got blown up up in Missoula mm -hmm. by a suicide bomber. And... They had the uh, 25th was up there, the strikers. And actually, no, I'm sorry. It was it was the 10th Mountain that had strikers and the 2nd Brigade. But uh, they uh, called us up there because they needed dismounts. And uh, so New Year's Eve, we deployed to Missoula, and then we went in into old Missoula and set up, you know, cops and all that stuff. And we were there for – four or five months and it was just straight wild west you know just shooting shit up like but uh i'll tell you what i was so nervous about deploying because i felt like i wasn't scared you know but i was afraid like what if i start getting shot at or something blows up and it freaks me out because i was on the range and all back you know before yeah, yeah. Deployed, nothing bothered me and uh, I was like, fuck. And then I had one squad leader. He was old like me at the time, but he hadn't got promoted yet. Uh, this guy, Doyle, and he's a good friend of mine. And I was like, I said, dude, what if what if freaking I ain't got the guts to do what the hell I got to do when we get hit? And he's like, he looked at me, he's like, Mac, because that's how he talked. He's like, motherfucker, you're crazy. You won't. He's like, if anybody's got the guts to do it, it's fucking you. <laughs> so anyway, long story short, we go – we get to Missoula, we go out uh, our first day when we're going in the sector to set up a cop. My platoon, we got into a firefight. Uh, you know, it wasn't huge, but it was probably 
squad size element in this uh, these little old building complex. And we went through clear, did all we had to do. And, you know, I did what the hell I was supposed to do. And then I'll never forget, Doyle just walks up to me, puts his hand on my shoulder. He's like, told you, motherfucker. And he walked <laughs> off. He's like, yeah, I'm good. But I tell people that now, man. Like, like uh, any of that stuff that happened to me, man, getting wounded, none of that shit bothers me at all. Mm-hmm. You know, like literally, it, it, the only thing that bothers me is the fact that I didn't see it coming. You know, but other than that, because we all know when we go into those situations that that shit can happen. You know, and I think mentally we're prepared for it. But what I talk to guys about all the time is what we don't prepare guys for is after all that shit's over and they fucking become civilians, you know. So it's, uh, yeah, man, it was, uh, I was nervous. I was, uh, you know, didn't know if I'd have it in me, but I did. And, uh, you know, I kept kicking ass and, uh, you know, kept deploying after that. Um, my fourth deployment, though, however, man, there's a guy writing a book about it right now, but it was, it was straight hell, dude. Like it was a meat grinder, um, in, in, uh, Afghanistan. But, so yeah. what, what year was this then you see so deployed to Afghanistan? What, what is that? And was that the first time you deployed there? No, that was actually, so I deployed there in, uh, 07, 08. Mm-hmm. We were in RCE, Skazni province and all that stuff. And then, uh, then we deployed, um september of 09 through um 2010 and my company we were the main effort for the battalion and we got sent down to uh that's when we went to hellman when all that stuff was kicking up with margin and everything with the marines yeah, yeah. and the bridge down there so they sent us down there to fight with those guys and then um it was uh just before thanksgiving the uh, battalion commander came and visited me and the colonel I mean, me and my company commander said, hey, we got battle space. It's in the Argandive River Valley. You guys are the main effort, and y'all are going to be smack dab in the middle of it. And he's and he put his hands on both our shoulders, and he's like, it's going to be fucking rough. Um, and because the unit that was there before us, within a few months, had taken either 16 or 19 KIAs. Um, and basically, I mean, they were a striker unit, um, but – Basically, so the Argandab River Valley in Kandahar is kind of like the Ho Chi Minh Trail um, in Vietnam. Like, it's the route going up into Kandahar City. And the bad guys wanted that shit to stay open. And, uh, and you know, we got, the, we got the mission to go out there and set up chop in the middle of it and freaking clear it from the inside out, which we did. But it was, it was rough, man. Like... I set up a combat outpost out there. I'll tell you this. After all those years, and this is 2009-10, you know, I've always lived austere on deployment and everything else. But I go up on the side of a mountain to look down in there and see where we're going to set up a combat outpost, and there's fucking nothing. And finally, there's a place with a little bit of a wall and an orchard and all, and it was an old radish field. And I told told the CO, I was like, well, it looks like the spot, sir. So we wound up setting up a cop in this radish field that was like literally like this. So I had my guys like um, level it all out with e-tools and shit. But the thing about the story is at that time, that place was so dangerous. uh, And there was only one lock in and out. So one road in and out, and it was tiny. And we couldn't get any big trucks, no PLSs. 
we couldn't get any any support from aircraft other than other than Kiowa's because none of the actual uh, CH-47s or any of that shit would fly in. It was too dangerous. So, and this is right when in Afghanistan, uh, IJC had outlawed Humvees because everybody was just getting obliterated. And uh, I told the colonel, I was like, I got to get our shit in here to build a cop. I was like, let me use those Humvees. I got it freaking uh, at, uh, at, what was it, uh, Warrior, at Five Warrior. He's like, whoa. Well, anyway, he authorized it. So I had, and this, the, you'll you'll laugh at this. So, you know, Humvee trailers, a little trailer, right? Mm -hmm. Well, we had a 60K generator, freaking huge, two of them, big white ones, that we actually got from your brother in, in Hellman. Um, I, I was like, how the fuck am I going to get power in there? And uh, so I talked to our support company, their first sergeant. I was like, hey, dude, can a record pick one of those things up? He said, yeah, it should be able to. I was like, what? Well, get your record driver, man. I need him. He was like, for what? He was like, I got I to gotta get him to pick up some shit. So anyway, <laughs> I had the record driver pick, pick them up and put one on each Humvee trailer, right? And we drove them down that road. And I mean, it was terrible getting them in there. But when we got the Humvees in there in the radish field, it was raining and everything. The trailers sunk and they stayed there the whole fucking deployment. I just built the road. <laughs> uh, yeah, like I had, we carried all our own Hescos in. We carried uh, fuel blivets, all this shit. Dude, I had, and it still blows my mind to this day. And, and some people think I'm full of shit, but I, I, pr I promise you, I can show you pictures. I had Hescos up for three months with no fucking dirt in them. Because <laughs> nobody could get to us and, and we couldn't find a local. Finally, we got a local to fill him, and uh, he just stole freaking dirt from like one of the farmers. You know, I, I've said this before to uh, on on the, on an episode prior. We went, we've jumped into compounds and stuff. You take a compound over for a day if you know you're stopping for whatever. Yeah. <clears throat> you got the sandbags in your kit, and you fucking get your five or ten sandbags out per man, whatever you're carrying. Start digging. Yeah. It's like right, this ground is like it's like concrete. I, I'm not, yeah. we, we fucking can't dig. And we filled sandbags up with with moon but moon dust and straw sometimes. <laughs> yeah, put them up, put them up there on the roof and made it made an attempt at putting some fucking hard cover in there. But it, the, you know, had it, had anything came, we'd have been completely yeah. fucked. Um, yeah, I mean, you, at least you had at least you had a deterrent, but it wasn't anything that's going to stop something. Plus, it was you also know, like, that bullshit thing as the as the, the platoon sergeant or whoever it was at the time, platoon two. I see has to be seen to be getting the guys to put sandbags up yeah. there it's like you know you, you may as well just say to them look whatever we're filling this with is fucking useless we may as well just save yeah. the energy save the time and jump up there and put a put a fucking a a, a bergen or a backpack in front of us maybe that'll yeah. give us a bit more hard cover than a fucking a sandbag full of moon dust will but uh yeah mate that's that's funny about getting your <laughs> getting your trailers stuck there in the ground and just build, yeah. building around it and then uh, when we finally left the valley, because those trailers didn't belong to me, they were our HAC company's trailers, right? And my buddy, he was like, uh, dude, am I going to get my trailers back? I was like, if you can figure out how to go in there and get them, dude, I can't bring them back to you. Let's you just, know, write, like, just write them off and say they got yeah, that's just a combat blown up or some shit, yeah. But uh, yeah, man, it was, uh, it was crazy, man. Like, you know, uh, all the combat experience I had and everything – at that point, 
you know, we, we did IED training and all that stuff, but um, booby traps and dismounted IEDs had never been a big training thing, you know, cause it didn't really pick up until around that time. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, hell, we were there, we got in December 19th is when we actually cleared into the Valley. And my first KIA was on um, December 26th. And it was so fucking hard for me because, you know, I had one of my damn good dudes, KIA, one missing a leg, um, you know, other guys jacked up. And it was a dismounted IED in an old uh, gray putt, right? It was a PMM mine with a 25-pound jug of HME attached to it. And, you know, the guys hit it because we had them go check it out at night. Because at that point, you know, we, I mean, we on the night, we, you know, patrol around. And uh, it, like, to just to have that happen right there and no bad guys in sight, no nothing, you know, it, it was like, what the fuck, you know? And then, uh, so, um, yeah, we had that happen. And, so we started, you know, obviously deliberately, no bullshit, clearing everywhere. We took every hard path, climbed the high spots and walls. I mean, I was a, so I was an E8 first sergeant then. And, and, in, and in my world, um, it's different than the Marines or any of that stuff. A first sergeant is a senior tactical guy. So I was out with those guys every fucking day, man. And, uh, and some of the shit we ran into, man, you would just like, and you're like, how the fuck did these guys figure this out? Like I, I had one guy, man, um, Mike Verardo. He's a, he's a badass. The kid, uh, and this happened while I was on a uh, mid tour leave. They made me and the CEO finally take mid tour leave, even though neither one of us wanted to. And, uh, Mike, uh, was patrol he was he was point man went to take the high spot in the wall did everything he was supposed to do and jumped the wall and right on the other side hit a big pressure plate with like 50 pounds of hme like blew his arm off blew his leg off uh he was burned over like three quarters of his body i mean he made it through and he's still doing good now but uh when they when they did ssc on it man because i was like how the fuck did they know he was going to cross there? You know, like there's no path to it. Mm -hmm. Well, the CEO sent me some pictures. Actually, no, not the CEO, it was the EXO. Sent me some pictures because I was back home um, for those two weeks. And what had happened was the bad guys had taken and just took brush and just kind of laid it out. You know, so what do infantrymen do? Instead of walking through some shit, they're going to step around it and do all this shit. So it was just enough that it just funneled him in, man. Yeah. But subconsciously, it was so subtle, you would have never noticed it. And I was like, how the fuck are these dudes this good? But anyway, long story short, um, we uh, we found uh, – it's got it on my NCOER. I think we found 98 IEDs dismounted, and we had 26 strikes against us. It's fucking, um, it's fucking insane. Yeah, it was uh, like I had 11 amputees in my company. Uh, over 50% of the company had Purple Hearts. Um, and by the end of that deployment, you know, I went from 100 and 
I think I had 124 guys at that time. To the end of deployment, I went. I was down to about 19 guys per platoon. Um, and I mean, we did we did what we were supposed to do. We won the fight, um, but it was it was rough, man. Like that's the only valley other than the Korangal when you research Afghanistan that had never been taken by an outside force. Like, uh, you know, the Russians tried, Alexander the Great tried, all those people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the only way you could do it was you had to live in there. And, uh, and when springtime hit, that place looked like Vietnam, man. It was so green, you know, it was all canals and everything. And, I mean, we walked through all the canals. We did all that shit. I mean, they, they would have tripwires in the fucking wheat fields. They'd have them in the damn uh, – orchards you know at neck height when you're like kneeling down trying to get through all that shit and it was a uh... but the hardest thing man about that whole that whole time there man was the fact that you know i'm pushing guys every fucking day to accomplish a mission and the mission wasn't about how many guys we kill it was about dominating that terrain and let, not letting the bad guy get through. And the only way to do that is to saturate and constantly be out. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, and, and I could see it in guys, man. Like, you know, I was like, who the fuck's going to get hit today? Even though we were good, every time we'd figure out a TTP, they'd figure out one, you know. But, uh, you know, I I, uh, I look back on it, man, and, and – uh, like still to this day, and I'm and I reached the pinnacle, man. I was command sergeant major of a a 900 man airborne infantry battalion. I've been an operations sergeant major for a 4,000 man brigade, and still to this day, man, like my company in the Argandab were some of the most hard disciplined motherfuckers I've ever worked with in my career, and and they fought out there for each other, man, because. You know how it is. Like, hell, there were other companies that had some dudes that just quit. Yeah. And, and if they do, I can't physically make them go out. I can kick <laughs> their ass out of there. But, you know, I, I remember one day um, I was going on patrol with, it was my third platoon and one of their team leaders. He had already got hit once. Um, I think it was an RPG that, hit, that he got some shrapnel from. But going out and he's like, I was like, hoax him, man. You don't look good. What's up? He's like, I'm scared for a sergeant. And I looked at him. I was like, well, I'm fucking scared too, dude. I said, but why are you going to, why are you going to walk out the wire right now? He's like, because they are exactly. Cause you're here for them, man. And they're here for you. And, uh, you know, we like, I could talk for hours about it and go into detail yeah. and shit, you know, as a, as a, a leader, um, and a guy that, I guess what I'd, what, I, what I'd like to say about it, if any leaders, regardless of what country, branch, whatever, um, I was able to do, two years ago, we did a reunion for my company from the Argandab. Um, We did a reunion in Charlotte, and I was nervous um, because for a while there, I, I didn't even know how to face some of those kids because they got maimed and shit. Um, and anyway, we did a reunion. Me and the CEO both went, and out of the, um, thing, I think we have now 106 guys left alive, um, 100 of them showed up. And 
the greatest thing for me from all of that was, you know, and that's 10 years later, basically, from that deployment was seeing where they're at now, but being able to talk to them, like, not as a first sergeant, but as, you know, a dude that went through what they went through, but I'm not the guy that was putting boot in their ass anymore, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but what I've heard from all those guys, and it, it, it makes me feel like everything was worth it, was that they know that if they wouldn't have had me and the CO out there, that it would have been a lot worse. Um, because, like, I talk to Jared Lemon all the time. He's one of my guys. He lost his right arm. And, like, he was an NCO, you know, and he uh, he told me, he's like, first arm, when you were our first arm, we fucking hated you sometimes. He's like, <laughs> NCOs, we, we'd contemplate and killing your ass, but we knew it could Because you were just so fucking mean. But he's like, he's like, when we look back on it, we know why you were doing everything you were doing. And, and like I told him, I was like, dude, you got to understand, man. Um, you know, if, if I'm your leader, I'm not your fucking friend. You know, I can't be. Yeah. And I got to lead from this, not this. And in my mind, keeping their asses in the fight and putting boot in the ass and all that stuff is what keeps guys alive, you know, keeping their head on swivel. Like, you know, I've seen units that have like a, a platoon get hit and lose somebody or something. And then they take them out of the fight for a couple of days. There was no fucking way I'd ever let that happen, especially in a place like that. Because if your head wanders any, then you're out of the fight, you know, but, uh, but yeah, man, we were able to do that. And it was really good too, because a lot of those kids, cause you think about it, man, they go into something like that. They're 19, 20 years old. Don't really understand why, like, Dudes are getting blown up and shit. And we're not killing that many bad guys. You know? Well, I can't, I'm part of that age group, so I, I would be yeah. that the same age group. I was in 2010. I was 19, so I would have been part of the exact same age group. And I deployed when I was 18, and then again when I was 20. So the first, my, my first one was just such a fucking whirlwind. There was so much shit going on, and we were operating at such a high level. I just came from basic training. I didn't have a fucking clue what was going on. Yeah. I didn't have a fucking clue what was going on. I was jumping on helicopters, running off, and getting told to get on the roof, get up there with my gun, do this patrol, do this, and I'm just, just fucking doing it. And there was so much information and so much fucking shit going on day to day that I can't remember anything, anything almost anything of that first deployment, just because it was information overload, just non, yeah. non-stop. Second deployment, a little bit older, a little bit more uh, wisdom between, between the ears. And you know, with a with a better, well, not better, but with a different uh, different platoon, more senior platoon, you know, we had a, a a different role, and then you can actually get to understand exactly what's going on, why we're doing things, you know, what the actual situation is, enemy and friendly forces, what other you know uh, assets are doing on the ground, what other you know companies are doing on the ground, who's AOs, what, where the no fire lines are, and all this sort of shit. But that, yeah. you know, when you're a, a complete buttfuck private, you don't have a clue what's going on. But one of the things I did want to put, pick up was just some of the similarities that obviously we're we're in the same AO, or we're not the same AO. We're in the same country. We're in the same theater. But some of the things as uh, you mentioned about, you know, you were taking over areas where people had been previous and and guys were wanting to quit or guys had been quitting yeah. from different units. That happened with us as well. So. 
you know, we'd rock into a fob and we'd get a, get a brief and it'd be like, right, yeah, the guys that were here before, they just, they didn't patrol past this canal or, yeah. you know, they, after 6 p.m., they didn't do any patrols. And it's like, that's, that is quitting. Even, even if you're not, even if you're still yeah. patrolling and you're still doing this and that, if you're not exploiting all the area, if you're not yeah, doing you're your not. job to the fullest, you're, you're essentially quitting. And that was very, that's very common for, you know, some, some of the units we had, uh, or some of the units that were out in Afghanistan in our, in, uh, from the British army. And, you know, it's very common. It's, it's widely known that that was going on, you know, you know, units just wouldn't patrol sometimes. Um, the yeah, other one yeah. was the other one was IEDs and great putts. We lost a guy and that you know young lad that um, went into a great putt. Exact same thing under contact, ran into a great putt, get take cover, um, and it was just obliterated. The exact same thing. So the TTPs are you know they're the exact same from the enemy, but all you know they're all over, and it was still still fairly new. Two thousand and nine. You know, we weren't doing much training on I. We were doing a lot of training on IDs, but nowhere near as much as I was in 2011-12. Yeah, same, man. Like, dismounted, we hadn't done a lot of that at all. You know, when I first came in the Army, we did a lot of booby trap training and stuff yeah. back then because we were fighting the Russians, we thought. But, yeah, man, no, like, um, yeah, I, I, we researched, uh, like, me and the commander when we were in the Valley on our snap, you know, we'd get in on the internet and we would uh, research Vietnam anti-booby trap techniques and stuff like yeah. that, you know, figure out how to combat some of that shit. Yeah, it's crazy. And then again, just uh, another similarity as we had is casualties. So I remember we were, uh, our, com our company had lined a route and we were, we were uh, allowed to prevent security so another company could move through us. And as that second company was moving through, what we had previously cleared one of the guys hit an id and you know mentally for for our company the enemy's not there but we we yeah. cleared it some poor poor guy had had missed it missed the id it might have been too deep in the ground it might not have had low metal content yeah. it might have been whatever but he ended up there you know some somehow it got missed the route was deemed to be clear and so the guys were walking through and one of the lads hit it but it was at night there was no enemy there and it's like how it's the same thing you were talking about. Like, how the fuck do you mentally deal with that? That's uh, it's challenging, but it's yeah, you uh, get your ass whipped without flying a shot, firing a shot, you know? Yeah, that's it. It's like, uh, that's one of the things that's I think is the legacy of Afghan, and and uh, it's the the IED toll that the IEDs and the mental toll that it has on on you know <laughs> war fighting. It's completely changed, flipped the flipped the book almost. Um, yeah. And it's something that's you know they've got a huge amount of uh, experience with now, and I hope that continues to go forward and that it doesn't get forgotten about for the next conflict because it's going to continue no matter what no matter where we are, wherever we end up going. IEDs yeah. are going to be and booby traps are going to be a massive part of it, especially if we're fighting irregular forces like we have been yeah. in the past twenty years. But um, yeah, so in terms of your in terms of your casualty list, then from that deployment. <coughs> How was it for you being being the first sergeant and having to deal with uh, casualty replacements coming in, and, and and was there was there any sort of brief from you as to what you expected of them or what the situation was going to be like for them? Yeah, everyone that came in, um, and uh, me and the CEO, we decided. I think we made them uh, forget how many days, but there were X amount of days we wouldn't let them patrol. They just trained, they learned the AO. Like we had a. Uh, 
So we had a company Intel team then. So the new guys would have to sit down with those guys so they could brief them on all the historical IDs, everything that's happened in the AO and all that stuff. And uh, what division was doing really well before they would send us replacements was back here at Fort Bragg. They were, they were pushing guys through, what did they call it back then? Um, they were pushing them through a little marksmanship IED course before they came out, um, which was good. It was nothing compared to what they were doing in country, but um, in my mind, I couldn't take a kid that just got there and have them walk out there because they, they don't know what to look for, man. Yeah. And even though their squad, you know, they got a point man with a metal detector leading and shit, one of those other kids, because he's been there and he gets it, he might see something that they didn't and step around it and be like, hey, what the fuck is that? Yeah, yeah. But this new kid would be just following the leader, you know? So we did that, man. Um, and I'll tell you, for me, um, the hardest thing for me was, like, looking at those guys and being that dude that puts boot in their ass and, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, being a fucking asshole and pushing them so hard that I knew it. I knew they were so tired, man, that they, they wanted to just stop. And, uh, uh, what was so hard for me was, you know, everything I had been through up to that point, you know, um, I'm evacuating kids and shit and, you know, I got kids sitting there missing limbs and shit, and I'm first starting holding their hand, telling them everything's going to be okay. And what really got me was I couldn't say we're going to get the motherfuckers that did it because we had no clue who the fuck did it, you know. Um, and uh, and that deployment, man, um, throughout my career, that was the only time that I truly came to terms with the fact that I was going to die um, because every day I was out with the guys – just like CO was, and you know, and I figured odds were against us, you know, but uh, we made it. But uh, what was I don't know, man, it's just is you can't even like you know, I talk to my buddies and all, and they all talk about you know how hard my fight was and all, but like I tell them, man, I'm like, you know, we all know what combat's like because we've been here and all, but like, unless you walk that valley. Like you could never visualize what it was like, you know, and uh, and and that's why now, man, it took me so many years to actually, I guess, get past the guilt of still being here, um, to actually reach out to those guys and start talking to them, and and like you said, you know, when when I can sit there and talk to a kid who was a PFC and tell him why we had to do certain things, because I knew why, he didn't. And at that point, I didn't give a fuck if he, did, if he knew that. The only thing I gave a fuck about was he was out there doing his job, you know? And that's why I, I used to tell guys, man, like, like uh, you know how they teach you, everybody should know the mission, everybody should this, that. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I, I tell fucking privates. Write, write, like, the, oh. write the mission in your notebook. Yeah. That's the only thing no, you no, need. No, fuck no. <laughs> I'm like, the only thing you need to fucking know is how to be a fucking a rifleman or how to be a fucking 203 gunner or how to be this. Because if you're doing your job, then the mission is going to fucking get accomplished. I used to I'm always like, do that as a private, you know. I used to always write down the mission in my notebook and never, ever, ever look at my notebook afterwards. And it no. was just like, I, after a while, I'm thinking, why the fuck am I writing this shit down? 
I, I forgot it fucking about an hour later anyway, so it's uh some some <laughs> officer told you you needed to. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. But uh yeah, you know, like it's not about like nobody gives a fuck if you know the mission, man. The only <laughs> thing I give a fuck about is do you know your job? Do you know the drills on the gun? Do you know yeah. how to fucking reload your magazine? Do you know if where I your spare you link there, is? Yeah. If I say go to this tree and pull fucking security, I know you know what the fuck you're doing. That's what I want, you know. Uh, but yeah, man, I mean, um, it was, uh, you know, all my deployments, except for my last one, were like hot and heavy, dude. Um, my last one, I deployed as an operations sergeant major uh, as part of TAC Northeast with 10th Mountain. And this is in 2014. And no general over there at that time wanted to freaking be the one to explain that a kid got killed on his watch. So all we were doing were pushing the Afghans to go out and do shit. Yeah. But I tell guys that deployment was the one time I was able to get in real shape because I lived <laughs> on a fucking fob. I went to the gym every day. I had fucking internet. And all those dudes on that fob, especially the SF guys, fucking hated me because I would crush their fucking soul, man. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to look all cool and shit. Or go in the gym and they'd have like Taylor Swift on or something. I was like, nah, you're throwing off the fucking cannibal corpse or something, you know? But yeah, man, I mean, um, you know, I, like I said, man, with the Argon Dob, like it was, you know, guys tell me now when I gave them that go to war speech when we were going in there, because I knew it was going to be rough, that that's the first time they ever had the real, you know, it actually come to fruition. Um, and, and I'll tell you, man, it, it it fucked with me so hard because I was so used to closing wind and destroying the bad guy. You know, like, if he's out there shooting at me, I ain't fucking scared at all because I can outshoot that motherfucker. But, you know, when I'm, when I'm pushing guys and saying, hey, look, we got to clear this area and we need to set up a cop over here and a cop here and a cop here, and it's not about how many dudes we kill, it's about us being able to get eyes on all this shit. Um, that's rough, man. And like, uh, you know, that deployment, I lost, he was, I had two squad leaders that were like neck and neck is the best. And, uh, and uh, Brunkhorse, when he got killed uh, on that deployment was the first time in my army career where I felt like we got defeated. And it crushed me, man. Like, so basically what happened then was we, uh, so in the Yargadab, we found out where, what village all the IEDs were actually coming from. So it was a, a village called D Calche. Um, and we called it DK. So CEO and I were like, we gotta, we gotta move in. We gotta clear that bitch. You know, we gotta take it over. Right. So we decided to go in one night and this is, uh, March 30th. And, uh, the uh and we were still learning man because as like i said we'd only been out there since december we we're still learning the ieds learning their ttps and we went in at night and uh i had my whole company it was a whole company clearance we moved in and we hit i had four strikes that night for my ieds uh different corners different areas and uh 
I had three at first. We've acted guys, kept continuing mission, SSC. We even had uh, EOT, EOD team with us. Um, but anyway, what fuck with me so long about that one, because Bronk, I mean, I know you can kind of see how it was. Like, I wasn't your fucking friend, man. Even though I loved you, I wasn't going to let you know it, you know. Um, and Bronk, you know, the last thing, I, you know, I, I dicked him down was the last time I talked to him, you know, like for fucking something up. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and uh, anyway, you know, we got those other ones. We got the dudes evac. We had two amputees where at that point we're dealing with those casualties and, you know, as an infantryman and people don't understand this, realistically, at that point, we were pretty much combat ineffective because we were focusing on those fucking uh, medevacs. Mm -hmm. um, but um, anyway, so Brunk was a weapon squad leader at the time. Had his uh, his guys covering down this uh, T intersection by the by uh, the river that went into DK, and um, EOD had went through and cleared right, and then. Brunk saw something that I guess they didn't see and uh, walked up there, man. And, and freaking, it was a command wire and it was huge and it was designed to take out a whole squad. And it freaking, basically I heard the blast. I called up platoon sergeants, give me a sit rep. Uh, all of them gave me an up. And then my third platoon sergeant, he, he's like, Hey, it's three, five. I don't have accountability at three, four. And I knew, man. And uh, anyway, we had no accountability at Bronx. So I had to call, and I'm sure you guys, I don't know if y'all call it the same thing, but a dust one. Um, so when a soldier's missing, if you call a dust one, then all assets come to you. Um, so I had to call a dust one. And uh, we uh, we had to fall back away from the, away from the village. Um, we clear where we were at we freaking we had uh like we got all the assets that kandahar had at their disposal that came in within minutes man i mean we had cadaver dogs we had everything and uh and bronx platoon sergeant was the first person to find a piece of him and he found it about 400 meters away in the canal and it was a piece of his body armor with a piece of his torso and and, and uh some of his shit but um what was hard for me is one for years, I couldn't even say Brunk's name because of, I felt responsible. Like I was like, he went out and put himself out there because he wanted to first hard to know he was fucking scored away. You know how we all do. Mm -hmm. Regardless of what happens, we blame ourselves. But uh, what really fucked with me, man, like real bad was the fact that, and the CEO even asked me, he's like, first hard, should we keep pushing? I'm like, sir we got to fall back to the cop and we got to rethink this whole fucking situation. And to be a, a badass infantryman, to be through all the shit I've ever been through, to get beat in one night without firing a single fucking shot, you know, was like, it was one of the roughest things ever. And uh, I remember we got the boys back in and, uh, you know, we found parts of Brunk. And uh, I remember uh, me and the CEO were talking and he was blaming himself for pushing the guys in there. Obviously, he made the decision. But uh, I told him, I was like, sir, we still got to fucking clear it. I was like, let's just get some fucking aircraft and fucking land on the river. 
And I mean, literally our cop was only three K from DK. Yeah. But on foot in that valley, that may as well be a hundred fucking miles. You yeah, know what I'm talking about. I just about to say, mate, in Afghan in Afghan a K is a K is ten miles. You know, if you yeah, can if yeah. you can clear a K you're fuck you're absolutely laughing or if you can do two K, three K, it's like those are big numbers in Afghan just because of the IED threat. But let me let me just kinda I, I, I know you can I know you're all right with things now I can tell by by the way you've been talking, but yes. you know, you can you can achieve your aim. You know, guys in World War One they achieved their aim. They got to the first and second and third trench. But by the by the time they got there, they had ten, you know five guys left out of a full company of six hundred. That's not a success. If no. you're if what you're doing is you're going through and you have four ID strikes and you you've lost five six you know seven guys, yeah. you realize that right we've just completely exhausted everyone. Morale's at ultimate low. We will no. not be able to succeed if we continue. Let's yeah. let's let's withdraw, rejig re-engage tomorrow or the next day or whenever and then we will be able to succeed without those mass numbers of guys being lost but it's it's hard i guess it must be hard for people who haven't been there to understand how insane the the id threat is in afghanistan and just mentally yeah. what what it looks like on the ground you know like you've had the night you, you know i remember one of the most vivid things of my deployment is we had an id strike you know it's absolutely carnage for 40 minutes helicopters yeah. are in you've got your companies running around you know securing hlses clearing hlses and then you've got guys take you know the handover of the casual on the helicopter that helicopter takes off and it's complete silence complete yeah. silence nothing nothing is going on absolutely nothing and for that five or ten minutes you're in your fire position you know covering your arch all you're doing is thinking all you're yeah. doing is thinking about fuck, thinking about his parents, thinking about if that could have been you, thinking about if you'd done something wrong, thinking about making sure that you're doing your job right now. You know, you're not, you're a human being and all you're doing is thinking about insane things. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's just fucking crazy. Afghan, yeah, man. Afghan for me, and, and I never deployed to Iraq, but Afghan for me is, you know, it's I think about it almost every day. Um, especially that my uh 2000 and 2009 deployment it was just absolutely insane and you know i don't think about it in a negative way every day i think of it as the best time of my life and it was horrible for when you look back at it and you know there was like i think it was seven lives lost and yeah. you know a bunch of casualties and shit and you know now now the taliban own all that ground that we worked so hard to take and you know and we gave, we gave it all back man. yeah we just gave it all back so now in hindsight you look back and think was it all worth it but at the time you're not thinking about fucking any of that you're, you're literally just thinking about getting the job done making sure that you're doing your job as best as you can and sc screwing the nut for everyone around you yeah. making sure that you you know <laughs> you're not fucking it up for anyone else um but I couldn't imagine what it must be like being a sergeant major or a company sergeant major at the time. Yeah, well, I could tell you, man. Would um, you say that would be the, the the pinnacle of your career? I tell everybody to this day that being a first sergeant was the best and worst time in my career. Um, you know, in the Army, they got a saying, being a team leader is the best position in the Army because you don't have a lot of responsibility. You only got a couple of guys. But, uh, you know, being a first sergeant, in an infantry company, just like with you guys, a company sergeant major, you see your effect on those guys every day. And 
you have the knowledge and the know-how to keep your commander on the right track, you know, because as, as an E8, when I was with my company commander, you know, I had 12, 13 years in the army. He had like eight. Um, and, you know, I could teach, coach, and mentor and guide him in the right directions, you know. Um, my job was to train him, to train him to be a battalion commander one day, to do this, to do that. But you you have to – with that job, man, I think it's only suited for a certain amount of people, like a certain type. And you have to have – and I know you know what this is, but and I know you've seen dudes in the military who don't have it, but you gotta have candor, man. You gotta be able to tell something tell somebody what they need to hear, not what they want to fucking hear. Yeah. If that makes sense to you. You know, like and that's what I told my commanders every time. I'm like, sir, I'm always gonna tell you what you fucking need to hear, not what you want to hear. Yeah. So and I said, ultimately, if we get to the point to where you're like, first sergeant, shut the fuck up, we're still doing it. <laughs> then yeah, I'm gonna support you and I'm gonna own it, but you're gonna have my fucking opinion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh but the hardest thing, man, and and when I was a sergeant major, I saw this, man, and I couldn't believe it. But like dudes not owning shit. You know what I mean? Like like if if you're a private under my command and and you you ask, Well, this is stupid, why the fuck are we doing it? I'm not gonna say because battalion said we have to or whatever. I'm gonna say because I fucking said so. You know, even though I might have said this is fucking ridiculously dumb bullshit that we're fucking doing. Yeah, yeah. But by the time it gets to me, it's your job. Yeah, I have to own it. You know, and uh and there were times, man, where I owned shit in my career that I did not want to. But if I would have been that guy and said, hey, it's fucking bullshit, they're telling us to do it and all, then then how effective would would my unit be? You know, like yeah. like uh dude, I, I mean like I said, dude all my years in the army, everything I ever did that one night was the one time I felt defeated. Like literally not even when I got blown up. Cause I fought through that shit and I was going to be good. Um, but you know, we went back about a m- month and a half later, air assaulted in and we took that fucking town. And then we set up a cop in there named cop Brunkhorse, but we air assaulted into the riverbed. But, uh, yeah, man, like, oh, and, well, here's one for you, too. So, Brunk got killed on the 30th. Um, I think it was April 2nd. I was doing a memorial service for him at the at the cop. Uh, my battalion sergeant major that was there when I was wounded wound up having a heart attack. And they had to evac him back because he's an older guy. And we had a new brigade sergeant major. Um, we had just got our HESCOs filled, like, literally the day before Brunk got hit. So the on the second, Blackhawks come in. It's the new brigade sergeant major with the brigade commander, right? Um, I got all my guys out there. We're living in shit. We're fucking dealing with shit every day. And this dude comes in, and the first thing he asked me was, hey, what are you guys doing for church out here? And I looked at him like, what the fuck? You know, like, and I'm a professional guy, you know? I was like, sergeant major. Do you see what the fuck I got? I was like, my supply sergeant does church because he was a, a guy from Africa and he was religious. Yeah. And I was like, the fuck? Well, anyway, uh, we're talking 
And I'm like, this dude's a chooch, right? He was just straight up. <laughs> and uh, we go in, we're in the battalion. I mean, uh, company headquarters, we had an Alaskan tent. And me, him, and the uh, commander and the CO are sitting there. My CO always tried to keep me from, like, overstepping sometimes because I had a tendency to do that because I actually gave a shit about the dudes. Yeah. But uh, Sergeant Major's like, I think you should take your third platoon out of the fight because that night when Brunk got hit, uh, Edinger and uh, one of their other guys got hit, Edinger lost his leg. And I looked at Sergeant Major and I was like, Sergeant Major, have you ever fucking led troops in combat? That's exactly what I told him. He said, like, what do you mean? I was like, if I take that fucking platoon out of this fight right now, then I'm going to have a shitload more Edgers fucking the next day. I said, no, what we did was send them back out on fucking patrol, and that's what we should do. You know, and he's like, well, blah, blah, blah. Well, anyway, what was funny was while we were talking about that dude, like, and, uh, I have video of it somewhere that one of my FOs took, but we actually, the bad guys, and kind of like you said, what we were talking about before, I don't know why they waited so long, but they tried to overrun us that day. And it might've been because we had the Blackhawks come in. I don't know. But anyway, we got attacked from the, uh, there was these old ruins out there and there was these couple orchards that we couldn't blow down. So we got attacked and, you know, according to battalion, it was a hundred to 200 Taliban, you know how you always hear that. But I, I estimate it was probably like a platoon size. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we got we got hit. RPGs came in. So I immediately ran out. Um, and that day, because we were doing Bronx Memorial, I had all my platoons there. Their combat outpost that I had, I had uh, three cops at the time. Other companies from the battalion took those over so the guys could come to the uh, memorial. So... And I actually had what a first are supposed to have a base defense plan. So my guys were, everybody knew exactly what the fuck they were supposed to do. If we got hit, we tried to get overrun. Everybody's on the wall. Platoon sergeants gave me a up within a couple of minutes. And my FOs had the Kiowas on station and we're just fucking lighting shit up, dude. Like we're fucking shit up. And I had my first platoon in there standing by ready to fucking move out and assault. And then we had him move out in assault. And, uh, and anyway, we kicked the shit out of the bad guys that day. And it was one of the most much needed things that my guys needed, you know. And uh, I remember the uh, brigade commander put his hand on my shoulder. He's like, first of all, I think your guys are good. I was like, yeah, they're good, sir. <laughs> Thank you. You know, like, what the fuck? But, but to what I, what I learned that day and what I tell people is I learned throughout my military career you can learn from both good and bad leaders on how to be and how not to be. And, you know, when I was a Sergeant Major, if I walked up and, and visited a company that was living in shit, the first thing I would, I would say is, what do you guys need? You know, not, where's your fucking religious service? <laughs> like, in the grand scheme of things, who gives a fuck, you know? Like, like hey, Sergeant Major, I need fucking... I need to get some 120s out here. I need this. I need that. You know, like. Yeah, but, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story about about leadership. So, <clears throat> coming through the ranks, I, I I had a bit of a a reputation for being a bit of a hard ass. I mean, like I was I was never physical or anything, but I was like, I was I would always like hold guys accountable, and I was like, look, if you're fucking you shit, if you're fucking shit, you're shit. 
Um, yeah. And I, I don't, I, I'd never ever, you know, you know, you're in these company PTs. I would never ever like encourage guys. I would never ever say, oh, come on, let's work hard. I would never do that. If you're fucking hanging back, it should be motivation enough to get your ass up the front. Um, so anyway, as I go through my career, I, I end up going through a bunch of pretty shit platoon commanders that I end up getting back at the rifle company. And I'd just come from the recce platoon at the time. So I'm working with a, a great bunch of guys, you know, really, you know, um, a custom a custom platoon officer who's you know he's managed to uh you know pass a course and all this sort of shit so he's he's legit but all the platoon staff are legit as well so I, I leave there come back to a rifle company and the rifle company they you just get what you get given in, in terms of your officers so i'm coming back and i'm known the standard these guys should be at and they're constantly performing below the standard so I'm telling the guys, I'm telling the privates, I'm telling everyone that these guys aren't working hard enough, they're not doing their job. Like, and I, I'm, well, I'm not telling them directly, but, you know, they can tell, you know, yeah. subliminally through my messaging that, that that's what I'm thinking. And so, and I'm, I'm also telling them directly that you are not performing to the standard. And as a, as a section commander, it's kind of, it's kind of the unwritten rule that you you do that to establish yourself almost in the, over here in the, the, the British army, you know, you don't, you don't, us. you want, you don't want some fucking sex commander who's a complete pussy and a yes man. You, the, the, you almost want to be the guy who's the complete opposite. Who's, who's the, the cunt towards a platoon commander. And I mean, I guess I was that, and it, I wasn't doing that purposefully. So eventually like I'm, I'm pretty senior. I'm probably about f uh, four years into, into my role as a sex commander, my uh, company sergeant major. Who's a, a top bloke as well. I really respect him. He brought me aside and he's like, uh, I need to have a word with you about it's about your, your leadership style, you know. Some of the uh some of the officers have said that your your leadership style is a bit too arrogant. I said to him, Fucking arrogant. I says, and and why why exactly have they said that I'm too arrogant? It says, Oh, it's but you know, you're not motivating the guys, you're not doing this and that. It says, I'm 100% confident. That's what it is. There's a difference between arrogance and confidence. I'm 100% confident that I know my job fucking, you know, back and on the back of my hand. Like, it's it's second it's second nature. I've got it on the back of my hand. It's not arrogance. It's extreme confidence. And that's what you. That's what these fuckers are missing. <clears throat> and he's like, yeah, yeah, right. Okay, okay. I get it, I get it. But maybe just tone it down a little bit. I says, tone it down. I says, what do you want? Do you want a fucking war dog, at, you know, leading guys having to rein, rein people in? Or do you want a fucking yes man who's going to, you know, get guys killed and fucking all this sort of shit? And he's like, ah, right, I'll have a word with them. I'll have a word and just let them know what's going on. But, you know, the, it's, the leadership is it's, it's something that these guys have all been through at their, you know, their officer school or, you know, training that they, they do. But it's you know it's all classroom based. It's none of it's. Yeah. They've not grown up hard. They've not been in fights. <laughs> they, they've well, let, not well, experienced me, any of it. Well, let me ask you this, man. And this is my observation on leadership. Truthfully, you can't. Honestly, I don't think you can be taught leadership qualities and skills, but you're either a fucking leader or you aren't. Yeah. You know what I mean. Because I've seen dudes in the in the military, they're great dudes, but they just they can never be leaders, man. They might make it to that position because they never fucked up. 
and they <laughs> yeah. eventually get promoted. Yeah. But it's kind of like I used to have this saying in the army, you know, I used to say you could hide it until you're an E7 or an 04. So 04 is a major, E7 is a potential yeah. art. Because at those two points in your careers, as an 04, you're handling operations for a battalion. As an E7, you're in charge of 42 guys. And if you're fucking incompetent and you're not a leader, everybody's going to see it. You can hide it until then because you got guys to take care of you. Yeah. But, but literally, man, even now, I could take 40 dudes and put them in a room. Without them saying anything, I could tell you who the leaders are out of that yeah. group. And, and, it, and they, they, they click together as well. So with yes, it, within your yeah. unit, at each rank, each separate rank, you'll have a little clique, and that will be the fucking yeah. top dogs of the of that rank. You know, it might be your squad leaders, yeah. might be your platoon sergeants. The, the the good ones will click together, and the shit ones will just kind of you know mingle mingle around and try and fucking find their way. But the good ones, you know, that you can spot good blokes like you just mentioned. You can spot them a mile yeah. away, and you know each you know you're attracted to those same guys that, that are performing and operating on your level. So, um, yeah, you, the good ones always click together. Um, it's interesting though, bringing up that leadership issue, but, um, how, how did your, uh, how did your present your role as a command sergeant major go for you in, in, in terms of going from all of this, um, active deployments to then getting a desk job essentially? Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, so command sergeant major was a it was a good time. I uh, you know I I tell guys I get a lot of guys now that ask me for leadership advice, right? And there's two things I always tell them: be seen and lead from your head, not your heart. And as a command sergeant major, you should be seen. So your boys should see you every day. Um, you're not out there kicking indoors. You're not doing any of that shit. You're just advising the. Uh, battalion commander you know you got your first sergeants and you're the guy that deals with those guys but what i what i learned early on is you focus two levels down right so when i was a sergeant major i focused on my platoon sergeants because they were two levels down from me you know because i had first sergeants and then those guys um and i will tell you as a command sergeant major the cool thing was, was I could pretty much um, do what I wanted to as far as the enlisted guys go. So, for example, when I came back to my battalion, um, I'd only been gone two plus years because uh, I was the first sergeant in the same battalion. And I, I have the tat now, the, the devil. But, uh, but uh, so, you know, the guys – there were still a shitload of privates that were there before that didn't even work for me, but knew, knew when I was a first sergeant and they were terrified because they thought I was like <laughs> fucking Satan. Right. So I came in and, and truthfully as a sergeant major, as a command sergeant major, you know, you're the standard bearer, bearer for your unit. So you make sure your boys are doing the right fucking thing. So I crushed dudes for uniforms and all that shit. But, uh, the coolest thing for me as a sergeant major, I think, was able, I was able to mentor my platoon sergeants. You know, I was able to, even though I wasn't kicking indoors with them and all that shit, I was able to, for example, say you're a private, right? You're walking through the battalion AO and I see you. I'm like, hey, come here, bud. 
why the fuck you why the fuck are your boots not bloused or why the fuck you know whatever uh 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 why do we not do that and I explain it to him but then I'd be like uh hey what company are you in uh Alpha Company First Art what fucking platoon uh I mean Alpha Company Star Major uh second platoon all right you got your shit fixed move the fuck out right then I'd go back to my office and I'd call Alpha Company's first sergeant and say hey Send me second platoon, platoon sergeant right fucking now. <laughs> and then when he'd come into my office, I'd come in. He'd knock on the door, close the fucking door. And I'd be like, uh, do we not fucking enforce fucking standards and discipline in fucking second platoon off company? What do you mean, sergeant major? I'm like, saw some of you guys fucked up, you know. And then I would give him, you know, corrective sergeant major talks. And at first, that was how I got to know my platoon sergeants. But then it gets to the point to where you know your guys so well that you know, as a sergeant major, you can still see your effect on the battalion on how your platoon sergeants operate. And you really you really don't get to see it until they go out and do platoon training, yeah. you know. But, uh, you know, I would know I'd have this one platoon sergeant that was kind of like me. So he'd come in and I'd be like, hey, I caught one of your boys. I need to do your fucking job for you. That's all I need to fucking say, because it would just eat at his soul, you know, because he was a good dude. And I wouldn't even tell him what private it was, but then there would be another one be like, hey, motherfucker, this, this, and this, if you don't fucking do it, I'm going to fire you, because I knew I needed to get them to that level. Yeah. But uh, but being a command sergeant major, man, the, the uh, I guess the, the coolest thing about it, man, was being able to see you know, uh, how you and the battalion commander can literally mold your battalion and give them identity, you know? Um, cause for example, I'm not saying anything bad about the guy before me, but so before I came in, came back as a command sergeant major, the army tried something different. They sent dudes to like different units that weren't from the units they were accustomed to being in. So the guy that was there before me had never been in an airborne unit. Even though he was airborne qualified, he had never been in an airborne unit. Therefore, he didn't know how the 82nd worked and all that shit. Um, like me, like I told you, out of the Sergeant Major Academy, they sent me to 10th Mountain Division, even though for most of my adult career, I'd been in the 82nd. You yeah. know? But I went to a light unit, not jumping. But the greatest thing was... You know, you could see, like for me, like my first two weeks as command sergeant major, I had first sergeants told me, sergeant major, we've seen you more in two weeks than we've seen our old sergeant major in two years. And you're only getting two years, you know, in a battalion. But the greatest thing about it was, you know, I could literally walk through battalion and talk to so many soldiers and just get a pulse of where, of what we needed to work on for combat. You know what I mean? Because yeah. like I used to tell guys, like I tell platoon service, I'm like, when I talk to Joe, he's going to tell me what the fuck I need to hear. Yeah. I was like, and like I used to tell him, I was like, Joe will fuck you. You don't know he's <laughs> fucking you, but he'll fuck you. If that makes sense to you. And, I'm a, uh, I, I, let me just jump in there. I remember doing the exact same thing as like, you know, you're, Joe, Joe will tell you. So we call them jocks in the Scot in the Scots here yes. in the UK. So 
The jocks will tell you what's going on. Like, I remember doing rifle cleaning and I would, I would hold up the gas cylinder. I'd be like, right, lads, what's this? Or I'd ask a, I'd ask a jock individual, I'd say, right, what, what's this? And obviously, everyone should know it's a gas cylinder. Like, yep. you should know every part of your weapon. And I'd, I'd ask him knowing that he didn't know the answer. <laughs> and he'd be like, yep. oh, fucking hell, what is it again? What is it? I'm like, how the fuck do you not know that and inside, internally? I'm like, right, this is this, this is this. You, you, a bit of training while you're doing a bit, a bit of rifle cleaning. And it's like, you talk to the lads when you're down getting a you know a bit of a a bit of a break and a coffee or whatever it's like boys these fucking these guys don't even know half of this half of the things that we should expect them to do so we'll get them out we'll get them out and do a bit of training and on the range or whatever we'll, we'll just yeah. do extra remedial stuff and it's uh it's funny just picking up the sense of like the level of where guys are at just by you can ask one question and you're like this guy doesn't know shit yeah you just well, and I mean, it's like, too, I mean, like, you know, for example, if I walk up to a kid and I'm wearing that wreath and lettuce on my chest, he's already nervous as fuck. <laughs> so if I want to do some additional training, I know what questions to ask because I know the shit he's not going to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I know the shit that he's like, but, 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 um, the good the good thing about it was, though, like I, I would tell you, man, like, uh, you know, I made the Sergeant Major list when I was in the Argonaut. And honestly, at that point, I didn't want to make it. Um, I never thought I would because I was so young and I didn't do any of my records and none of that stuff. And I got picked up for the academy. But when I finally got to that point, I was like, you know, when I leave this battalion, I want these guys in this battalion to feel like this is their battalion for life. You know, I want them to feel like this is home. And, uh, and me and the Colonel, I think did a really good job of that. Cause my Colonel that came in, I had knew him back in the day, um, when he was a Lieutenant captain. Um, like we had a thing, we put up, I put up a big sign in front of the battalion. And I said, to fury, that's want to. And like I told dudes, I'm like, you got to want to every fucking day. Even though it sucks, if you want to do it, you're going to be able to fucking do it. And uh, and I have guys now, man, like truthfully that, that hit me up and tell me, Sergeant Major, it was great having you because you were a hard ass, but you taught us what right looked like. And I think it's even more important to them now because they see what I'm doing now. And they're like, you know, you're not that guy anymore. And I'm like, yeah, dude, I'm retired. <laughs> I'm just an old metalhead that fucking enjoys life now, you know, like, uh, but, uh, but, you know, the, the, the greatest thing about that though, man, like for me, when I could, when I tell a commander, I'm doing NCO PT today. I don't know if you saw any of my posts or whatever, but old ones, but once a month I try to do NCO PT. So I would pull every fucking NCO in the battalion and I would smoke the shit out of them. And I would show them that, all right, I'm the old dude, but I can still smoke you motherfuckers. So what does that mean? You need to push harder, especially nowadays. And uh, when I was a Sergeant Major, and I have dudes that tell me now they're glad I'm out because I would be, <laughs> like the way the military is now would be like crazy. You'd be in jail. But, yeah, yeah. But what I would, 
what I would do was I tried to show them that like, look, dude, it don't, it ain't about anything except for you're a fucking NCO. You're the alpha fucking male of your unit. Therefore you lead in everything. Mm-hmm. And like me as a Sergeant Major, dude, think about it. I was in my forties, man. When we jumped or I went and fucking ran them for PT and shit, I had fucking three or four days of recovery after that shit. <laughs> you know, they didn't, but they didn't fucking know that. Yeah. But, but they knew that Sergeant Major was still fucking doing it. Yeah. And that's important. And when you get to that level, man, and you know that in your army, like when you're, I was an E9, man. If I didn't show up for PT or didn't do anything, who the fuck's going to check on me? <laughs> Nobody. Yeah. Right? You know, nobody's going to say, where the fuck's Sergeant Major? You know? But I had to be seen, man. And, uh, and, and being with those guys, like, I don't know, man, like even my last couple of years, you know, when I was a Sergeant Major was like, I love troopers. I love being around soldiers. I love, I loved all that because it, it just made me feel alive, man. And it made me feel like that, that I, I hope and pray that one day, when they're where I'm at, they're going to remember something that Sergeant Major Mack told them, Yeah, you know, just like I did with mine, the good ones, you know? Oh, absolutely. No doubt. Like, I'm like talking to you, I'm thinking about my old, uh, uh, regimental Sergeant Majors and stuff. So of course they are, of course they'd be thinking about all this sort of shit. Um, but you mentioned about the stuff that you're doing now and that you're essentially inspiring guys who are either still in or who just in general know you. Um, so what, what, what sort of things are you doing now? Cause I know, I know you retired in uh, 2017. So what have you been yeah. doing, uh, between now and then? And, um, and what is it that you're, you're looking to do in the future? Well, man, I'll tell you, I, uh, so when I retired, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I think we talked about it earlier. I had the broken neck and I had to figure out what I wanted to do. But, uh, when I first retired, I started working with a nonprofit that helped a lot of my guys, um, and you know, stuff was good. Uh, what I did tell myself when I first retired was I was like, and this is true, man. And I think you could probably relate. I mean, hell I can relate. I didn't want to be that typical retired Sergeant major. I didn't want to be the guy that works in range control on post that still wears his rank on his sleeve and all that shit. I wanted to just be me, but you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And, uh, so I got out, I was doing, you know, the work with the nonprofit that helped a lot of my guys. And uh, I was doing that for about nine months to a year. But I finally got to a point to where, like, shit wasn't right, man. Like, like things wasn't right with me in my head and everything else. And, uh, and my wife and my best friend had to come to Jesus meeting with me. And they were like, you need to take care of your shit. You need to go see somebody. You need to do whatever. And uh, my whole adult life, man, even after everything that happened, I was always the guy in control, right? Um, For the first time in my life, when I came to terms with all that, I wasn't in control. Um, Like my thoughts, my memories, everything was controlling me. And a lot of just because I didn't have troops anymore or whatever. But, uh, you know, I went with my wife. I got help. I got my shit together. Um, I, uh, 
I realized through I've dealt with and retired and uh, and please tell me if you relate to this because I've had a lot of guys tell me is you know I was an E9 in the enlisted world that's the pinnacle right but when I retired from the army I had no clue how to be a civilian you know like the only thing I knew was being Sergeant Major Mack and to go into this world and yes, I was busy doing the nonprofit stuff, but what I realized was I couldn't stand the way civilians operated. I couldn't stand all this shit. And it wasn't because I didn't like those guys. It was because I didn't understand this world, you know? And uh, so I had to fix my shit. I had to go to, I literally went to therapy and stuff. And I tell guys that now, but but with that, what I'm trying to say is, I guess if it makes sense, is I came to the realization when I had to do that, that there's not enough senior guys like me, regardless of what army, what you're doing, that's telling guys, hey, dude, I'm dealing with the same fucking shit you are. And guess what? At this point in our life, like you, brother, you don't owe anybody a fucking thing. Yeah. You gave yeah. your life to something else. But what do you what do you owe right now? You owe it to yourself to be happy. Well, and that's that, it. Uh, and yeah. uh, I'll I'll jump in and say that that I do relate to that. Like when I when I yeah. got out, I planned to move to the states. Uh, with, with my wife's American, and I planned to move there. Uh, and you know I don't know what I was going to do, but I you know I I'd planned ahead that far. Um, it just so happens that that never worked out, and uh, I never got my uh my visa to stay over there so we now live in the uk but when i got back to the uk that plan had failed so i never had a plan b um and so i was kind of stuck in that in that limbo period about not knowing what was what i was going to do and you know it was it's it's strange because i was applying for a bunch of jobs and you know not even getting a phone call and, and, then, no. I, and then i was like well maybe i'm aiming too high and it was like up ops manager types jobs for like shitty companies like nothing yeah. nothing that nothing that a private soldier couldn't manage to do so i was like right maybe i'm, I'm aiming too high let's start at the bottom and and no joke me i remember applying for a painter's mate uh, so a guy who helps the painter and i was like i didn't even get a call back for that and this this went on for about three or four months and i was like fucking hell like what the hell is this civilian life all about like why the fuck am i you know, and it was a bit of self-entitlement, I'll be honest. Like, I felt like I, I was expected, you know, I, I was expected to be handed some decent work and, you know, five grand a month sort of fucking jobs. But there was a little bit of that there. And then after a while, I realized that, right, it's not that easy. Um, and then when, when I never even got a call back for the painter's mate job, I was like, right, let's fucking figure out what the hell is going on here. You know, the, the defini definition of insanity is doing something and having a, a a reaction and then doing the same thing and expecting a different reaction. So if I was to keep applying for all these bullshit jobs and and keep de denied, like, <laughs> nothing's going to change. I'm just going to keep de denied from all this sort of shit. So it was actually a mate who got in touch with me. He's like, listen, I don't know what you're doing right now, but you should probably look into this. Um this sector so i did i done the, the the research i used some of the the benefits i had from the army you went and got qualified in this um but mate i i had to spend a 
I had to go into a decent amount of debt to get myself out of that, yeah. to that stage. And it was a bit of a risk. And from then on, everything has been, you know, amazing for me. I now yeah. have a, I now have a complete identity of what I want to be doing, like in terms of work and exactly who I am. You know, if a, if an employer was to ask me in an interview, you know, who are you? What do you want? Like I have all the answers. Whereas at that period when I when I first got out and Plan A failed and I was looking at Plan B, I didn't have a fucking clue. I really didn't have a clue. The army doesn't teach you how or how to set yourself up to to identify what you want and identify who you are they give no. you a few lessons about this is the benefits you're allowed this is how to write a cv this is this this is this and it's all useless like there's mm -hmm. no there's no mindset training you need to you need to have your mind retrained and you need to be given a, a whole never a whole nother mindset about how to look at life and how to look at other people who aren't fucking infantry blokes who are civilians who have never had a hard day's work in their life who have been sat behind a computer for 10 years like you don't get any of that training you don't, well, get, any, you, you don't get any training how to interact with people that don't no. understand you calling them a fucking cunt and it's it's meant yeah. to encourage them <laughs> yeah well like dude like i'll tell you like uh like me for example i mean look at dude i was on the executive level of the army but in the civilian world, does anybody give a fuck about that? <laughs> no. You know what I mean? The thing and, is, uh, though, you, you would think that they should, but they just don't. Yeah, it but, doesn't matter. Because they, they don't know. Yeah, man. yeah. And uh, it's kind of like you said, like I talk, I've talked about this on a couple of Max Man Cave chats. And it's not our fault in a way. You know, when the war is raging, we get home and all these different companies were throwing all this shit at us and these benefits and we all to include myself kind of felt entitled and i thought when i retired that everybody was going to be after me you know like because i'm sorry major i'm this no uh i mean fortunately now after everything i've done i found i got a job a couple months ago as the uh gators eyewear business development manager but like since i've been retired man like what i've realized is you know, we have the ability to make a company better, but they don't know that because they don't speak the language. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I actually, uh, for our, our army, I went a couple years ago, I got invited to uh, the Student Veterans of America Conference because I was working with a nonprofit. And, uh, I got to sit in as a subject matter expert with the DOD for our Soldier for Life program, which is basically what you go through when you're getting out to teach you how to write a resume and all this stuff, right? Yeah. And I got to talk to the DOD and I was like, well, let me tell you something. From a command sergeant major who got out, you know what you taught me? And they are like, what? I was like, jack and shit. <laughs> and like straight up, like... I can write a resume all day long, but at the end of the day, a civilian company don't give a fuck, you know, like, unless it's whatever. But, um, but like what you're saying, man, like what I try to preach to guys now, and I, I think you are too, is like, you have to understand when you get out, nobody fucking owes you anything yes. because we all volunteered. Yeah. Even your, your guys army is volunteer. 
Nobody fucking told us we had to fucking do it. Secondly, if somebody does want to square you away or something, that's awesome. But at the end of the day, nobody owes you a fucking thing. So you got to work for what you get, even in the outside world. Yeah. You yeah. have some great qualities. You do. Like leadership is easier. But what you were just saying, like when I was working in the nonprofit, I hired one of my guys who lost his right leg, right? Stud. He's been the world's strongest adaptive athlete, everything else. But he could not let go of the military mentality when he was in that position. And when you're talking to civilians like that, they don't respond to that shit. Mm -hmm. You know, and we have to learn how to how to live in this world. And but what I'm trying to I guess like even when I was talking to DOD, I was like, I can tell you from a command sergeant major's perspective, when a guy was getting out, the only thing I truly cared about was making sure they had their ETS award, their family was taken care of, they got to move back home, and then all this shit. What I was really focused on was filling that slot. And I don't know how you could <laughs> fix it in the active duty army. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But That's the truth of it, though. That is the truth yeah. of it. You didn't give a fuck about... I mean, obviously, you cared to square him away and make sure he was the basics but, were squared away, but you just, you were looking about forward planning ahead of work. Yeah. Because it's readiness. It's preparing for combat. Um, what I'll tell you is from an old guy here and hopefully and that's what I do with Max Man Cave Chats. Is I'm trying to show my peers, man, that they need to they need to tell guys like you that guess what, dude? We're all dealing with the same bullshit. Yeah. We're all going through the same shit. And you know where I was at in the army, but when I got out, I'm back to where you're at, dude. You know, like nobody owes me a fucking thing. And for me, I don't have a college degree, you know, because I was a warfighter. Nowadays they want sergeants and majors to have college degrees and shit like that. But what but what I do have is life experience. But if I go into a situation acting like I'm that asshole that's going to tell you, get your fucking shit together and all that shit, then I'm going to have a hard time getting that job. Yeah. And the problem is, is we don't – and I think that's why we, we have so many guys that have so many issues too is because, you know, they don't have me – are you yelling at them anymore, telling them, get your shit together, make sure you got the right uniform and all that shit. And, uh, and you know, and, and the other thing is, is when the war was raging, we all had so, like I said before, we had so many things throwing stuff at us and we felt entitled. Yeah. Like we really did. And, but when you think about it, None of these civilians in the UK or America, I mean, some do, but in the grand scheme of things, don't give a fuck that we were over there fighting the Taliban. <laughs> yeah. and you know, I, they don't I, even know what that's about. I, I'll be honest as well. So, like that—that that is a—that's a, a bit of a, a weakness creeping in there, isn't it? Being being yeah. self entitled and expecting this yeah. and that. And now what I now what I've came to understand is that you hundred percent need to be self reliant. No one's going to give you shit like you said. If you want something, you need to go out there 
figure out a, a plan, work through it and, and achieve your own success. Yeah. And when you do that, the results will be, or the rewards will be 10 times better than they would be if someone had just handed you a job or, uh, uh, you know, something that you hadn't had to work for. Um, yeah. And that's what, so if you come to the page on Instagram, that's what I'll, I'll preach all the time, self-reliance and taking ownership of your shit. Uh, and yeah. that that goes throughout society as well. Um, but you mentioned that you're work you're working with Gators Eyewear at the minute, and we're, we're probably just going to wrap up here uh, right. in, in in a little bit. So talk to me about what what you've got going on there. Well, it kind of um, so I have my LinkedIn and all going on. So basically, it was about two years ago I opened my own clothing shop at Fort Bragg, Rogue American Apparel, Fort Bragg. My buddy Wes Whitlock started Rogue American Apparel. It's his brand. And he had a shop here. I started running it. He's like, Mac, why don't you open up your own shop? So I did. COVID happened. Lost it, right? I could have let that defeat me. Um, in full transparency, and I've got to where I could talk to guys about this. And I had a Sergeant Major that was a Medal of Honor winner tell me this a couple of years ago. He's like, dude. And he was a Vietnam Sergeant Major. He's like, since I've been retired, I've filed bankruptcy three times because nobody teaches you how. So I had my own business. COVID happened. I had to file bankruptcy. Um, and I've never, like, I felt like a total fucking failure, you know, because my whole adult career, I've focused on making sure my credit's good yeah. and everything. Well, anyway, uh, through the veteran community and things that I know and stuff like that, uh, I kind of got this job interview, you know, for Gators Eyewear. And I've known who Gators has been for a while. Um, they're really big in the spec ops community, especially in Navy SEALs and all that stuff. But yeah. I never, I never wore them because in the army, you know, we wore Oakley's <laughs> and all that stuff. But anyway, uh, Interviewed, uh, they finally got a, they never even had uh, too many uh, veterans working for him. They got a retired Navy SEAL. I interviewed with him and he was like, Mac, you're the shit. We got to have you, blah, blah, blah. So we, uh, they offered me a job as the uh, business development manager for Gators. And the, and the big reason is they want to get the Army involved in the regular Marine Corps and all that stuff. And they're actually big overseas too, brother. Oh, really? I don't know if you've ever heard of them. Yeah, I mean, I, I see the adverts all the time. It's basically some dude well, stand, standing on the on the glasses that they squish down and they pop back up. Yeah. <laughs> they're uh, so they're made out of uh, aircraft aluminum. Like they're awesome, dude. Like I wish I would have had them. I wouldn't have this shrapnel on my eye right now. <laughs> and I will get you a pair. You like, can send me a pair. Them. Yeah, I'll get you a pair. But uh, but anyway, and I was honest with him. I was like, dude, I've heard of them, but I I don't know shit about them. You know. I was like, what I do know is since I've been retired, um, I have some really good contacts in the veteran community. I've done some cool shit and, you know, and I told him, I was like, I need a job. And uh, so we started talking, man. And, uh, and since I've been here since April, man, this company is amazing. Yeah. You know, you would think it's huge, but it's a small group of people. And they're really trying to get the uh, veteran community involved overseas and here. And uh, it, uh, 
it gave me like a renewed sense of like being with the troops again, because like even three weeks ago, I went and ran a booth for them at the tactical games, which we have here, which is like, honestly, we're a bunch of civilians want to act like dudes like me and you, cause they never <laughs> did what we did, but it's a really cool thing. You know, yeah, it yeah, kind of yeah, gives you yeah. an idea, but, uh, but it's a, uh, it's, it's a great company man. Who's really trying to get, not just special operations forces, but like dudes like me and you, because I have people, I don't know about you, man, that ask me all the time, were you in Delta Force? Were you in this? Were you that? I'm like, nah, dude, I was just fucking 82nd Airborne Paratrooper, you know, but, but I would put one of my nine man light infantry squads against any SF team any day of the week and they would fucking win. <laughs> you know what I mean? But but I love all those guys and we all love each other. But yeah. uh, what I love about Gators is they're really trying to do something that's different. Like you can skydive with them. You can, they really uh, protect your eyes and all that stuff, but it's, it's something that I could actually be a part of that. It's not checking my integrity because it's real. Yeah. You know, Absolutely. and if, if you understand, you know, you and I, where we come from, for me, integrity is everything. Like, what you tell me is you, then I shouldn't have to check that. But the, the minute you give me a chance to check your integrity, then me and you aren't close anymore because I don't have time for that. But so anyway, it worked out. I got the job. I'm enjoying it, man. I'm loving it. Um, we got a lot of cool stuff coming up. Uh, I'm actually doing a Spartan race in June. And I got Gators to sponsor it. I'm bringing a bunch of my wounded guys together, amputees, stuff like that. Yeah, I've done quite a few in the past since I've been retired. Um, the other thing, brother, this will really blow your mind, is I acted in my first movie a little over a year ago. It's about to come out at the end of summer. And I actually have a part in a new movie coming out. Um, um, and it's kind of like you said, man, if you – like what I try to tell my brothers is like, if I was working on range control or doing this or that, I truly wouldn't be happy, man. Yeah, exactly, man. Exactly. Yeah. Cause I want to be, you know, like think about where you came from, man. Like if I still had, even though I had a big, a long Mohawk for a while, but I just shaved it off cause they wanted to see what the movie looked like. But uh, <laughs> think about like, you know, if you came to talk to me, like even being in the British Army, and I was still Sergeant Major McAllister, would we have the same connection? No, this chat. I'm not gonna lie. This chat would have been completely shit if you still you still had that yeah. that bravado or that that act. And I've talked about it before. These these roles and positions you get put into in the military, they are an act. You have to act a certain way. So hey, listen, yeah. that 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 comes full circle into you getting into your uh, your first acting job. How was that, yeah. and 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 how did that come about? Well, uh, so like I said, when I got out and started working with a nonprofit, um, we did a event called Helicopters for Heroes in uh, Enos, Texas, where they wanted to get some wounded guys together, go out and shoot some hogs from uh, helicopters. So I got a bunch of my old guys together from when I was the first sergeant. And we went out and uh, we were out there 
And I saw this guy, and I'm like, I looked at him, and I was talking to this chick. I was like, he looks familiar, man. And she's like, yeah, he does. And then I went up and started talking to him, and I was like, holy fuck. You're that dude from White Chicks. You ever seen the movie White Chicks? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know the guy that wakes up in bed with Terry Crews? <laughs> the little dude with the long hair? <laughs> so that was Stephen Graham. Um, so he was out there. What I didn't know was he helped start the 22 push-up challenge for like, you know, 22 yeah, yeah. percent of awareness. And we started talking, and we just kind of hit it off, man. I, I really love the kid. I say kid because he's like your age. Um, we hit it off. And we did a couple other events. He invited me for some other stuff. And then uh, a couple summers ago, he called me one night at like one o'clock in the morning because he's on California time. He's like, sorry for waking you up, Mac, but uh, I'm writing my own movie. And I have this idea and you're my inspiration and I want you to play the part. And I was like, what? Because I'm really good at like tomahawk throwing and gunstock <laughs> war club. And I'll, like, I'm like, it ain't like that little axe throwing shit. Like I can throw like Norse tomahawks and shit and hit <laughs> knock the hair off of Nat's ass. But he's like, You're my inspiration. I want you to do it, man. And I was like, dude, I don't know shit about acting. And you know what he said? Kind of what you said. He's like, You're a sergeant major in the army. You had to act every day, you know? And when he when he told me that, I had to look back on it. I was like, Yeah, because I'm crushing souls for the same shit that I did back in the day. And I want to laugh, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but anyway, he offered me the part in uh, the first movie and I'm the killer in a horror movie. It's not, it's not bloody, but it's a great supernatural thriller. And I've seen it already. Yeah. Uh, it's actually coming out uh, early fall. They finally got worldwide distribution coming out in movies and theaters. And I don't know if you've ever heard of Rudy Reyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Rudy's Marine, a good buddy he's of mine. A, he's a Marine guy, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, Marine recon guy. So Rudy's my boy. And if you ever do want to do one with me and Rudy together, we'd love to do it. Yeah, we'll give him a shout. I'm, I'm more but, than uh, happy Rudy, to speak to him. Yeah. But, but uh, Rudy and I, so we do uh, kind of supernatural battle in the movie. He's like the shaman. And <laughs> I get possessed by a demon. My eyes are black. <laughs> I'm in 10 degree weather, covered in blood, just freaking. But, uh, so anyway, Stephen offered me that. I was like, dude, I don't, but I was excited to do it yeah. because it was another challenge. So we did it uh, January of, uh, of 2020. Um, he finally just got it uh, authorized for a worldwide distribution. It's coming out in January. Like, I'm not a big actor or anything. I'm in the movie a lot, but yeah. I'm like the evil entity killer, which I mean, at that time I had the big, you know, you could see. <laughs> But uh, anyway, he wrote another movie that's basically, it's like a prequel to Hell or High Water. And, uh, we're doing another one. It's a bank robbery movie, and I'm going to be one of the lead bank robbers, and Rudy's going to play in it with me. Damn, that's and, awesome. Uh, and there's going to be a point where it's going to be pretty badass. But uh, but it, it kind of fell into my lap because when I met Steven, like he said, kind of like what you said, and his buddy told him, he's like, and he, I was with a lot of my guys. His buddy's like, that dude's a command sergeant major. But he's cool as fuck. <laughs> you know, like, he's not that guy. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, and honestly, dude, like, what I'm trying to do now with my life, and guys ask me what I want to do when I grow up, and I'm like, I just want to be a happy old guy. 
Like, <laughs> don't, I don't want don't to be mail. Clint Eastwood on Grand Torino, if that makes sense to you. Yeah. You know? And uh, and I'm doing whatever. And I mean, it's a little easier for me because I have a retirement coming in. It ain't enough to live on, but at least I got something. Yeah. You know, but but I'm trying to show guys, and that's what I tell them is like, dude, you got to make a living. You got to do what you got to do, but do it until you can find something that fucking makes you happy. Like last night, man, I was just a guest speaker. Like, you know, I do a lot of nonprofit stuff, but I was a guest speaker on a, a heart support, the Your Life Gym from the from uh, Jake from August Burns Red had me as their guest speaker on their, on their uh, mental health thing last night. And my whole point is, like, I could sit here for hours and tell you, all the bullshit I've went through in my life. I mean, we've been talking for hours, dude. But in the grand scheme of things, what really matters now, especially in this world, it's like, dude, let's just be good fucking human beings, man. Hell yeah. If I need to prove to you that I'm a badass, then I was never a badass to start with. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? You can can tell the guys that are full of shit when they they, they actually have to try and – justify yeah. their role or their job to you it's like come on bro i'm i'm not here for that I'm, i've been there done that i don't need it anymore well you know man and i've met so many guys in the veteran community since i've been retired that will tell me their story and how badass they are and all and they have no clue who the fuck i am and then when they find out like why didn't you tell me i'm like does it really fucking matter yeah you know like i'm just mac man like you didn't work for me. Why the fuck does it matter? You know, it's not about, it's not about any of that, dude. It's about being a good fucking human being. And like, like I tell guys, if I want to wear a fucking cannibal corpse shirt or fucking go do my metal shows or do whatever, that's what I do. That's what makes me happy. Yeah. If I want to go lift weights, that's what I'm going to do. And that's what it's about, brother. And uh, one more thing before I forget, I meant to tell you this earlier, but uh, so when I was a battalion command sergeant major, our division got, one exchange for a uh, a three para guy, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, my battalion got the guy because we were the fucking most badass. Like my guys uh, uh, competed in the Cambrian Challenge and all that shit. But I had a guy named uh, uh, Hunt who was freaking awesome. What was his and, name? Uh, Hunt. Hunt. Trying to remember his first name. Trying to remember his first name, but he's a three para guy. He came over, um, first I made him a platoon sergeant, and then we made him a first sergeant because he was a stud. And I remember I asked him how many deployments he had. He's like, 16. And I'm like, six fucking teen. And he's like, Northern Ireland. I was like, oh, shit. I forgot about that. You yeah. Know? But he was an awesome <laughs> dude. But, it was, but uh, like, uh, I could send you, too, if you remind me, man. Me and him, when I did my, uh, my uh, NCO down and out, and we did our grog bowl. I had him up there with me when we did the, uh, when we added the sand from fucking uh, Omaha Beach and all. Damn. And I put the devil on there and shit. I had him up there with me in his red garb. It was pretty fucking awesome. Oh, that's cool. Hey, listen, we're, we're, right, we're, we're, we're going to wrap it up there, uh, Matt. Yeah, man. Uh, we've been chatting for fucking close to three hours now. Oh, um, shit. Do you, yeah, exactly. Do you have anything you want to leave off of, uh, leave off with for the guys just to, I don't know, maybe think about or take away from this one? Well, I, I guess I would say, man, just, uh, you know, at this point in your life, brother, regardless of where you come from, 
what country, whatever, you or I have nothing to prove to anybody. And we have, and it was hard for me to come to terms with this, but we, the really, really the only person we owe anything to is ourselves at this point. And we're always going to take care of each other. We're the best advocates for everybody else, but please kind of take a step back and look at yourself and say, Hey, look, dude, I ain't right right now. Just like I did and fucking fix it, man. Yeah. And, uh, and be that badass that you've always been, but just be it for yourself for a while. You know, hopefully, you know, that makes sense. But, uh, dude, I really appreciate this, man. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Now I got to have you on Max Man Cave chats one day. Well, hell yeah. Hell yeah. yeah. I'm more than keen. I'm a bit busy the next week or, or a couple of weeks, but we'll, we'll yeah. get it. We'll get it done. No worries whatsoever. Uh, but yeah, yeah absolutely great fucking chat uh, talking with you. And it's good to actually get deep into the infantry stuff. Um, some of the guests are a little bit uh, sketchy with that, but uh, someone who knows their shit is definitely good to pick their brain about. And I, I really do appreciate you taking the time out of your day to sit down with me, mate. It's been a fucking, it's been a good chat. And um, yeah, where can people find you on Instagram and, and on the on the uh, socials? Uh, Instagram is just Max underscore Man Cave Chats. Uh, changes to that because they want like because I'm doing the Max Man Cave Chats now. Yeah. Uh, and then Facebook, just Donald McAllister. And, uh, you know, like, dude, like, hit me up on Instagram. I have dudes hit me up all the time asking me questions and all. And, and, and believe you me, man, like, that's the shit that helps keep me alive. So, uh, <laughs> and I'm an old dude. I'm fucking in my 48, 49. I'm 40. I'm in, I'm almost 50. But I truly care about all of us dudes, man, because – I don't care about where you fucking come from. We all dealt with the same shit and we all deal with the same shit and we're all badasses. but guess what? I don't got to go walk out my chest out and shit to fucking let you know that. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, if you check out what I'm doing, man, I have some really cool, uh, and I can link you up too, man, if they're over there, but I have some really cool friends in the, uh, music industry now that, uh, are legit that really love guys like you and I, man. That's awesome. Well, hey, well, listen, you can give me a shout and or give the guys a shout as well and just let, let us know what's going on and keep us updated. But yeah, again, Mac, thank you for taking the time out of your day to, to sit down with me and give give the guys this bit of, uh, this bit of entertainment. And uh, I'm sure they've definitely been been entertained with your with your stories and your, uh, I guess it would be your, your life story, so to speak, uh, in a short form. But uh, thank you. I appreciate it. Well, I'm honored, brother. Thank you. I'm glad you reached out. And this, this was good for me. I needed it tonight, man. Thank you. <laughs> All right, man. Have a good night. All right, you too, brother. Thank you for sticking around to the end of the show. It means that you invested a significant amount of your time. And for that, I appreciate you. I need you to do me a favor and make sure that you're following along on all the platforms. Wherever you consume the podcast, make sure that you're either a subscriber or following on those platforms. New episodes are live every Sunday at 2pm UK time and they're available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple and Google, as well as a few of the other smaller platforms. Your support means a great deal to me, so let me know what you think of the show by leaving a review and if you have any suggestions or just want to show your support, uh, leave a comment. 
Once again, thanks for tuning in and come back next week for some more of the world's only infantry-specific podcast. <laughs>